This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello once again, bad movie lovers. I am your host, Nick Scheist, and... If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. You can help support the resistance by going over to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash love. I am still figuring out what those membership options are going to be, but right now, you can go there and you can donate, and it will be much appreciated. Your donations go a long way when supporting independent podcasts. And for today's episode, I was joined by a friend of the show, one of my cohorts at the Scheist International Film Club, Jamila Brown. She stopped by to talk about a movie that is as infamous as it is famous within the horror genre. And we're talking about the movie that's responsible for launching the term torture porn. It's Eli Roth's 2005 tourist horror film, Hostel. I'm just gonna like watch this dumb crap while I'm folding laundry. Pretty universally considered to be a not so good movie. I just feel like the people who don't like it, they're missing things. What he was doing on the dark web looking for murder vacations, I don't want to know. We're gonna like, um, (laughs) see these hookers guy's asleep and he's got ass cheeks in his face. His buddy movies are exercises in latent homosexual yearning. So he watched that movie, barfed, and then was like, I gotta do this for a living. Assholes, and I'm just gonna be able to enjoy watching them get killed. Oh, he just got done with like a night of tons of murdering and torturing. Are Europeans more concerned with the clit? Is that what it is? (laughs) You know what? I'm just going to watch funny reels on Instagram because I need a palate cleanser before I go to sleep. Okay, well, you're my bitch now. Don't let the lady's voice intimidate you. We are recording now. Uh, But Jamila, thank you so much for working with me on finding a time that works for both of us to talk about your movie of choice for this show. And that is Hostel. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to ask you some other questions before I get to sort of like the basics that I always go over. But uh, have you done other podcasts before? Um. No, only Seth's podcast. I got an invitation recently for um, one of my other mutuals. So uh, <laughs> um, I guess I'm a podcast girl now. Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me. Oh, well, thank you for reaching out to me. I'm always looking for new movies to bring to bad movies we love. And until you mentioned Hostel, I never, I guess, in my own mind, envisioned it as a bad movie. I mean, I know it like it had its reputation and uh, it was sort of 
infamous um and it was very much of a certain time and it sort of coined the term torture porn which you know then got applied to a lot of other movies uh, beyond that but I guess just like my own memory was like I thought people liked Hostel as a horror movie and then as I go back and I see some of the uh, like the Rotten Tomato scores and critic (laughs) scores and even audience scores I'm like oh wow this is uh, pretty universally considered to be a not so good movie and I think that um got me more excited to rewatch it and to sort of revisit it because I think with the, the benefit of hindsight and sort of the way that like social media cycles work, there's a movie like this that's approaching 20 years old that really hasn't been seen by an entire generation of, you know, young movie fans. So this is sort of entering almost the, the realm reappraisal. You know, in a couple more years, it'll be like Hostel is a 20 year old film. And I think a lot more people that are um, like more ingrained film critics and people in the industry will start to sort of look at it again around the 20 year mark, which it just it's an easier line of demarcation to be like, OK, it's been 20 years. Like, does this movie still hold up? Like, what can we take from it? And so it's a very different experience now. But you co-hosted with me when we did film club recently and we talked about godfather which is of course like a beloved film we talked about it for basically four hours uh, (laughs) because people just kept showing up and i was like okay well if they want to show up and say something that's that's perfectly fine but uh now we get to do this one-on-one this is this gets to be your time and so first i want to ask you like how was the experience doing the co-hosting Oh, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of interesting. I feel like a part of the reason why it was so long is not only because it's, it was like beloved, but also because, uh, there's just so many themes, uh, that you can take away from the Godfather. There's just so much to talk about. And I honestly, I feel similarly about this movie, but it's kind of like the complete opposite. It's like a really tight, like 90 something minutes, but yeah, I just, I just think there's a lot that you could take away from it. And I feel like, I feel not to say like you can't like this movie. I just feel like the people who don't like it, they're missing things. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I think um, like you said, like I'm pretty sure Eber like just thought it was disgusting. Uh, somebody, I feel like his, his name was like Elocene or something, uh, coined the term torture porn mm. and they also said like you know kind of Rob Zombie does this thing and um, the guy who made the Saw movies Lee Wanell. yeah so all those movies kind of uh, contributed to this new genre of, of horror films and I've I've seen those films and I've seen Eli Roth's first film Cabin Fever mm-hmm. um which wasn't terrible to me. I just think this was better. This is way better. This is better executed. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I kind of wonder, you know, um, I know Quentin was kind of his mentor and he was one of the producers. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like all the producers um, had a lot of collaboration with him um, as far as the story and um, getting it right. Basically, he came up this story, uh, I guess, you know, one of those videos that were like uh, circulating online of like seeing people get tortured, getting beheaded, basically. And he wanted to um, like research it. He wanted to turn it into like a documentary 
and like go to like um some places in like eastern europe and <laughs> and then he re- realized like uh this is kind of um like i can't find any like any credible sources so i'm just going to make like a horror film and um i'm not going to make it like political by like um having the antagonist be you know something like al-qaeda or something (laughs) um like i'm just gonna make it you know make it this sexual thing but i think the fact that there's like a sexual element to it kind of makes it political in a way and i first heard about this film i watched um that movie fresh do you remember that movie that came out last Uh, year uh the sebastian stan one on hulu Uh uh-huh yeah I never yeah, got around that, to it, but I do know of it. Yes, that was I really enjoyed it. It's it's definitely more of like like a comedic horror film, and I don't remember what podcast I was looking to listening to uh, what film podcast, but um, the co-hosts were like, "Oh, this movie is okay. Fresh is okay, but like Hostel is like a better version of this." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I have to check out Hostel." And I honestly didn't think I would like it. Um, like I was saying before, going in. I was just like, oh, okay, these are just assholes and I'm just going to be able to enjoy watching them get killed, <laughs> you know? Um, I didn't really think it was kind of uh, going to be, um, I don't know. I feel like it's it's kind of like commentary. Like you watch it and you're just like, oh yeah, I'm going to watch these people get killed. And by the end of it, you are kind of like, sympathizing with them and like you're go- like goading them to get out of this situation and it's kind of making you realize oh well this is like a really messed up situation like in particular jay hernandez's character mm-hmm. um he was just like a total prick and so you're just kind of like looking forward to witnessing get them get their just desserts <laughs> and i don't know it kind of the film kind of makes you think that um it positions that one character. I think his name was Josh. I think his name was Josh. Yeah. And you're kind of supposed to. The white boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it's, it's Josh or John. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of makes him seem like the protagonist and you kind of assume mm-hmm. he's going to be the final boy. Cause he's kind of a bit more virtuous. He's kind of a bit more like. Stereotypical. Reluctant. Yeah. Um, uh, like you kind of um, think he is, and then it's just so surprising to see him like get killed in the first act. He's kind of like this mm-hmm. Marion Crane sort of character, and then it had, kind of shifts uh, perspective to Jay Hernandez's character. And I liked how they had that scene where he's talking about, oh, you know, I I witnessed this girl um, uh, when I was eight years old, and she drowned in a in a pool, I think. And um, I, I tried to save her. I tried to get the lifeguard to save her. And she ended up dying because they weren't paying attention. And he just says that he remembers just being haunted by that for such a long time. And so it kind of um, is there like a really great uh, like kind of foreshadows him going back and saving Kana when he finally gets out of there. You know, I don't know. I just feel like they set everything up so well. And it's just so exhilarating. Um, and I was really surprised to find that other people just found it to be like, like an unnecessary amount of violence. Like the the whole entire film is just talking about, you know, consumption It's talking about, you know, thinking about 
what we consume and what we eat, you know? And uh, of course the, the, there's like, you know, like, like a literal element to that, like, like with food, but also mm-hmm. just thinking about, you know, bodies in general, you know? And so when you're watching it, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to watch a horror film. I'm going to watch these frat boys get, you know, dismembered or whatever. And the, by the end of it, you're just like, get out of there, run those women over. <laughs> you know, you, they start off the film and they're like, yeah, we're going to ogle these girls or whatever. We're going to like um, <laughs> see these hookers. And, you know, like she, he's, uh, that woman says at the end of the film, it's like, OK, well, you're my bitch now. You know, yeah. like you thought you were going to make me the bitch and you're the bitch. Now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah okay Um, well i mean you had mentioned sort of like how roth had cultivated the story idea behind this and what he was doing on the dark web looking for murder vacations i don't want to know but the the marketing for the film sort of advertises as like based on a true story or inspired by true events which is not really the case but when when you're marketing a film and it's like you can sort of uh tangentially say something like that it's like uh you know no one's gonna ask too many questions at least like when the movie gets released afterwards you may have to deal with some uh some press questions about whether or not this is actually a true story and how you know this true story but until then just enjoy the success of the film and you had mentioned you'd seen cabin fever are you you generally familiar with eli roth's work or did it end at hostel um, I might watch some more of it, but yeah, those are the only two I've seen. I actually didn't know that they remade that movie again. I don't know if he's yeah. involved with that. <laughs> I, yeah, um, it's like, how are you going to remake a movie from 2003 and 2016? Like, give it some room to breathe. Like, the first one was yeah, fine. Yeah, that is didn't so need to bizarre. <laughs> and I know he was the bear Jew. And he was. <laughs> and he's uh, very much, like, friends uh, with Quentin. Um, I think I listened to this one. I don't know if it was his podcast or it was something I just randomly found on Spotify where they were just talking about like all these old slashers for hours. And I could tell he, he, he loves the genre so much and he has like a lot of expertise and um, I respect that. Um, And uh, I don't know, like cabin fever didn't work for me just like tonally, you know, Um, it had this like, uh, uh like this twin peaks four but then it would have this like really weird kind of like elementary humor and then it would have this like really like horrific moment and i don't know it just felt like like he was constantly undercutting um like the serious moments in that film and i guess there are comedic moments in hostel but um i don't know they're not as goofy i think um yeah i think yeah i haven't seen any of his other films i mean he did do hostile 2 and uh the ones that i've seen that sort of uh echo some of the same things that you would expect after watching hostile is green inferno and knock knock Mm -hmm. um so if you if you enjoy eli roth i would recommend uh probably checking those oh you know what i did watch by him I kind of enjoyed it. I can't really remember much about it. Um, what is it like the Death Wish remake? Is oh, that what it's called? Yeah, I see Death? that he did that, but I didn't actually see that. Nor did I see the house with a clock in its walls. <laughs> yeah. Um or, or Finn, which I don't know if this is about a shark or a dolphin, but 
Oh, it's about a shark. Yeah, it's a documentary. So I'll, I'll I, have I to actually don't really like. <laughs> I've heard like uh, mixed things as far as like his, uh, you know, respect for like in the horror community. Like, do people like him? Do people like his films? That's a good question. And part of the conversation that was going on in the group chat was sort of centered around not just I wouldn't say his motivations for the film, but sort of uh, his intent with the film. And, you know, I was just joking at the time that I chimed in because I was like, I'm literally about to sit down and watch this movie. And y'all are having like an active conversation <laughs> that is very much going to shape the way that I see this movie. So I probably shouldn't have uh, interjected myself at that time. But I said, is it possible that Eli Roth is just a bro who like believes that he made a cool horror movie? And at the time, like, that's sort of the way that it came across, like at least to the best right. of my recollection. But I guess for the audience and for maybe people who haven't seen Hostel, if you could uh, summarize like an argument for why people would say it's a bad movie, how would you put that? And I've, I've written like reviews on it and it's, it's so hard for me to articulate my thoughts sometimes. <laughs> you know, I feel like, like it's it's secretly kind of feminist, you know, <laughs> you know, honestly, it is because it's like you're going in and you're just like, these guys are total assholes. They don't respect women. And then and then this happens to them. And it kind of it kind of is like like um, I think they even say this um, in the commentary. So in the beginning, when they're where they're going to this weird, like cosmic brothel and it's just like. <laughs> extremely like sexualized um and then they go to Prague and um they go to the hostel and and then one by one they get you know picked apart they get picked on um by these people who are trying to sell them to these people who are participating in this elite hunting organization that um apparently I don't know if you could tell this they they say this in um the commentary um so like the people who run it, they have like connections to like the Russian mob and the Yakuza. Um, so in a way, we probably could have picked this movie for <laughs> this mom <laughs> as a kind of a mob movie. Um, back back so, your way into mafia month. Right. And it just kind of like it's like a weird mirror of what was happening in the beginning, except it's happening to them now. And it kind of makes you think like, oh, like are you know is this way of consuming bodies and, and consuming people, is this akin to, you know, the, the exploitation that's happening to these guys at um, this elite hunting organization? Well, I, I mean, I guess the best way that I could kind of summarize it would be that you can, at least I would have to hazard a guess that, it's probably easy to dismiss this film as, you know, that's where the, the coin, uh, the coining of the term torture porn came from, is that this is a movie that is sort of like in love with its own violence. And yeah. so I think like there's probably a, a way to go about watching this and you see it and it's I mean, look, I shouldn't have not have watched this at like 1030 last night. Definitely not. But <laughs> <laughs> when I saw that it was an hour and a half, I was like, oh, I need to remember to think 
Jamila for picking a movie that, you know, didn't require three hours late at night. Um, right. But after the movie was over, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch uh, funny reels on Instagram because <laughs> I need a palate cleanser before I go to sleep. And so I think it's probably it's it's so visually disturbing in some moments. And mm-hmm. when that is off putting in a way that makes something inaccessible, I think it's pretty easy to dismiss beyond that point because you're not operating from a point of like, oh, what commentary is this film trying to make? Or like, right. what, what is the intent of the director and the writing and uh, the character design? It's just mm-hmm. this is gross and exploitative. And I am basically closed off at that point. Right. But see, I took that like like I was going in. I was like, I'm just going to like watch this dumb crap while I'm folding laundry. I didn't expect there to be any depth to it. <laughs> and I found that I took some so much depth from it. Like, I feel like it's it's weird that people say, like, it's unnecessary violence because I feel like it makes you question your apt, appetite for violence by the end of the film. You're just like, oh, my God, you need to run them over. You need to. Yes, I'm OK with you dunking his head in the toilet and doing that because, like, he caused, <laughs> caused all this stuff to happen. And it, it makes you question your appetite appetite for violence but it also kind of fulfills it but i don't think it's it's something that's like unnecessary you know what i mean i don't think it's like oh watch this look at this happen i mean i feel like it's kind of tame for today so i kind of agree with you like i feel like a lot of people are like reappraising it now and i I should ask you as well i mean when was the first time you saw this movie i saw it last year I saw last, it for the first time last year. Okay, first yeah. time last year. So approaching it, like, did you, were you already aware of sort of like the reputation of what the film was? Or? No, I, okay. I I thought it was, well, at first, you know, I, I can't even remember what podcast this is. I don't even think I listen to them anymore, but I, yeah, I can't even remember. And they were like, this is a good movie. This is better than Fresh. I was like, okay, that sounds gotcha. great. And then I started watching. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this, but maybe I'll just like it. You know, like how you'll put on like a dumb horror film that's oh, like, yeah. you know, it, and you're just like, I'm just going to enjoy watching these people die. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what I thought I would take away from it. I was like, this is short. It just popped up on Netflix. You know, I guess I'm just going to enjoy watching them die and see some <laughs> cool shots of Europe, you know, um, <laughs> and I got one of those things and yeah, I wasn't enjoying watching it die. It was, it was like, wow, this is crazy. This is insane. What is this trying to tell me? You know, I didn't like, I guess instantly think, Oh, like this is like, this is commenting on, you know, capitalistic greed and like, I don't know, sexuality. Cause you know, I feel like, I don't know if you also sense this, that the Josh character, you never knew like, why he was so like reticent and you know there was that kind of scene where he kind of puts his hands on um the german guy Mm, in the bar and he just kind of like like is he like is this like a repressed homosexuality sort of thing like i feel like it has all this like subtext to it for you, it's a, a slightly different experience because you're watching it, um, you know, almost 20 years down the line and right. go, going into going into it uh, sort of 
cold and not in a in a way that is negative, but just in a way that doesn't have a lot of the baggage attached to it. And so for me, this was sort of like at the start of a lot of other movies that sort of began to behave in a similar way to this. And Hostel was like the the tipping point for more films getting made uh, that would probably fall into like the, you know, torture porn subgenre. But um, so coming back to it now and sort of having my previous experience with it and then trying to wrap my head around what this is like, given the conversations that's like happening in front of my face in our group chat. Uh, definitely a different experience for me, but I'm glad I went back and watched it because I think there are takeaways from it and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at the trailer and see kind of like what they marketed this as, uh, back in 2005. Okay, cool. I think I was listening to the commentary and I was taking notes and I want to say he was, I don't know, he was one of the crew members. He probably was like an AD or something. And I don't know, I wouldn't describe this movie as a buddy movie, but he does. He says, like, buddy movies, he says this, buddy movies are exercises in latent homosexual yearnings. And I'm just like, (laughs) (laughs) like an interesting um, take. And yeah, I never thought of buddy movies that way. But I feel like, and then they're constantly using, like, these these slurs. You know, they're constantly like, Mm -hmm. you're gay, you're this, you're that, you know, and it's kind of like, is this character gay? Is that's what's happening? And then the one person who was actually kind of decent to him, but also was kind of like a creep because he, he did, you know, mm. you know, touch him without his consent, um, ends up being the person who tortures him and kills him. <laughs> and it's just like, what does this mean? This has to have some <laughs> meaning to it, you know? Yeah. There, I mean, there's definitely some points to be raised about, uh, overcompensating, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So let me grab my screen share, put that up. Okay, you see that okay? Yeah, I see it. All right, let's take a look. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. Battery technology has come a long way over the years. Fully electric cars aren't just something out of a sci-fi film anymore, and there are even batteries that can power your entire home. But, as the technology has continued to improve, the question about what to do with your discarded batteries remains. Well, thanks to a partnership nobody saw coming, those worries may be a thing of the past. Introducing Energito flavored batteries. Other battery manufacturers decided to add a bitter taste to their batteries to discourage kids from swallowing them. But at Energito, they've got the flavor you want to savor. They have three signature flavors you can try today. Nacho Energies, Super Sour Power, and Alpine Alkaline. From now on, rather than throwing those used batteries in the trash, you can just put them down the hatch. So the next time you need power on demand, reach for the batteries that provide both flavor and power that keeps going and going. Reach for Energito Premium Flavored Batteries. Energito! And now, back to the show. It's a green band trailer, at least, so it's not super violent. Wow, though. Okay, so it's dirty, it's dark. Mm-hmm. 
dungeony, talking about sickest fantasies. I love that cut. Yeah. Where it cuts to them cutting her toe and then it's the girl painting her nails. <laughs> yeah. It's that guy from Entourage. <laughs> See? Inspired by true events. I mean, isn't Fargo say the same thing? <laughs> yeah, this is almost like an like an ad for the fantasy aspect of it. Uh, so much of it is talking about where you can fulfill your deepest fantasies and all oh, that stuff. Like I didn't so much even, like, the notice trailer, the words. Yeah, well, there's there's no dialogue in the trailer right, right. at all. I was just like, this kind of sucks, this trailer. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. The trailer is almost like uh, an advertisement you would see for this particular service where it's like... Okay, so that's hey, why that's why they were like, mm -hmm. this is just torture porn. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, interesting that like you don't get any of the friend dynamics in any of that. You don't right. get... You don't get any of the like, uh, I guess, Euro trip or like right. road trip vacation vibes. And mm -hmm. one of the movies I covered most recently on the show was American Werewolf in Paris. And that centers around a group of three friends. That's a that dope are... movie. <laughs> <laughs> They're all very, very broy, And mm -hmm. like their behavior, too, is like, let's score. And we're mm -hmm. going to like, oh, you get points if you like jump off this building and you get extra points if you get laid and like kind of just like low brow kind of stuff like that. And so I could sort of see some of the. Uh, fundamentals of that type of storytelling here in Hostel, and you get this group of friends that they they are very broy, and mm -hmm. they it's it's very much over the top though as well. Where right. I think in two thousand five, you're walking a thin line between like asking the question of like, is Eli Roth? writing and designing these characters to be these offensive American stereotypes mm -hmm. or is he a bro who is writing <laughs> this to <laughs> suggest that this is like cool bro behavior reflective yeah. of 2005 and I think it can be probably a little a bit of both exactly <laughs> I think it can be a little bit of both of those things because like there is an excessive use of uh anti-gay slurs mm -hmm. and language right. like and one of the most like kind of like throwaway moments or a couple of them is one i think they check into one of the rooms and it's like oh you're gonna have roommates and the guy flippantly goes like roommates right that's gay. it's like why <laughs> is having roommates like, gay <laughs> aren't you guys roommates aren't you guys going on this trip together <laughs> exactly so but that's it's like, why i'm like <laughs> i think i think it's intentional before before I saw like all the commentary and stuff, I would have been like, I, I don't know about, you know, this guy and like his kind of persona, I think is kind of like he's the broy like uh, horror director who's also like a nerd because he knows all, mm -hmm. all this stuff about flashers, but he's still kind of broy. Um, but yeah, that was his intention. You know, it was like these characters have to be kind of despicable. So like it makes you question the violence, you know? It's it's not a movie about indulging violence. It's a movie about making you question it and even in question like enjoying it, you know, when they're when he's finally dishing it out to, 
you know, mm-hmm. the actual villains, you know, it like it's one thing to, you know, go into a movie and, and then I feel like, yeah, like it has so much co- commentary about, you know, like, you know, I think the the whole thing of calling it like a true story and him hearing like these kind of like urban legends of like, oh, this is really happening in Romania or whatever. Yeah. It, it makes you question, you know, like, is this something that could really happen? Are there corporations that would actually enable this? So you go in and and you're thinking of things from an individual level, like these guys are just like fat boys they are just like banes of our existence. But by the end of it, you're like, wait, but like they're just infinitesimal you know there's a whole corporation that's exploiting people (laughs) you know like for all we know this really exists (laughs) or you know it's a great metaphor for just how people are exploited in general in this country and throughout the world (laughs) by taking the time also uh to sort of explain that like the cost of the uh americans like in the torture business is Mm -hmm. higher Uh, right it it, it puts an emphasis and an understanding on sort of you know global relationships with america during 2005 i mean this is post 9-11 this is sort of spiraling out of the war and also the the torture uh of abu Ghraib uh Mm -hmm. that i believe kind of that came to light in 2003 so like we're seeing uh american behavior on a global level and Mm -hmm. then in the process like oh like america's been torturing people all these years and sort of just hiding it and pretending like that's not a practice that we Mm -hmm. engage in and so this is sort of like a reaction to that stuff coming to light in the media and it sort of represents the fear of like, if you are an American traveling abroad, like how, how much do you have to worry about? Like how much does the rest of the world hate us? And right. I think these characters are specifically stereotyped in a way to uh, represent America, right? This, right, uh, yeah. uh, what is the character's name? Paxton, I think is. Yeah, his name is Paxton. I mean, it's it's weird. weird. He's like, (laughs) yeah, and it's weird. I don't think, um, you know, I'm not sure that he was what they initially envisioned, but I think it just makes it even more interesting that he is, you know, he's Latino, but he's American. And like, even when he comes there, he's like, um, when they they get him in the chair or whatever, and uh, they're like, uh, speak, like, are you American? He's like, Mm -hmm. no, no, I'm not American. Yeah, he's like, look at (laughs) me, I'm not American. (laughs) <laughs> you know it's like oh so like this one moment i'm i'm now like yeah i don't want to be perceived as american you know and and yeah you kind of go in i mean obviously he he sets out you know making it seem like this all american guy is the protagonist and you know he's like quote unquote like more virtuous than the other guys or whatever but he's not the one who ends up surviving. The one who ends up surviving is this other guy, you know? Um, yeah, I don't really know what he's trying to say with that, but yeah, I think it's interesting. I think he's a really great actor. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's about on Hawaii Five-0 right now, or one of those other, uh, I think he's the, the Lincoln lawyer, isn't he's he? He's the Lincoln lawyer. <laughs> 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 surprise, surprise. Go get it. Right. Um, but yeah, his character design, like he's wearing 
the t-shirt with the the off color long sleeve shirt underneath like the <laughs> the way one of his first lines in the film i think is like we can't rail a girl that's in a freaking coma right. he, you know the way he sort of uh projects certain things onto his friend like oh you're mm-hmm. not cool enough unless you do uh x y and z like you're you're too shy and you're not getting laid while we're out here on vacation and so mm-hmm. that's a, that's a negative mark against you but then as soon as they interact with somebody that's like not in their circle they all zip up that bro behavior like fairly quick and mm-hmm. start speaking in like a different cadence a lot more respectful and so that tells me that the design of these characters being this sort of uh, abrasive American stereotype is very much intentional. And I'm like, you know, in the early part of the film, maybe like 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, OK, these guys are not necessarily likable guys. But mm-hmm. I could see that if I was uh, like 22, I'd be right, like, right. oh, yeah, these guys are just being like regular dudes out on vacation and doing the same dumb shit that a lot of guys their age do at that time. And I I, I felt like I would probably be significantly less in tune with that particular thing if I was a younger man at this point in my life. So mm-hmm. probably watching it when it was new in 2005 or seeing it in 2006, you know, I was uh, maybe what was I 21, 22. So I saw mm-hmm. it as like, oh, these guys are on vacation. They're doing the things that probably a lot of young men in their college years would want to do, which is backpack across Europe, you know, meet right. a lot of girls, go to Amsterdam and do a bunch of drugs like they're sort of living a very curated version of uh, an American experience. And right. I know that Eli Roth is very much in tune with that element of the telling of this story, because it's that uh it's sort of that pulling of the tablecloth out from that that really sets this thing off as this like Mm -hmm. horrible horrible event that all these people are part of and there's been um i don't know if it's a trend like that i've seen in only a couple of films but one of them is called dash cam and Uh it is by i think i started watching that rob said oh my god and this woman was just like awful like i couldn't even finish it because she was just like saying all these ridiculous things (laughs) yeah so okay so dash cam is a film where uh the director rob savage he recently directed boogeyman which was very good like entry point for him to do like a full budgeted feature i had fun with that but before that he did host during the pandemic and host was just like all shot on zoom basically so just ingenuity practical storytelling effects and using like an interface that everybody was common with and that's sort of like what Mm -hmm. launched him but in between that dash cam came out i want to say last year the year before and yes the main character is insanely abrasive and what that movie is really asking you though is do you want to see this person get hurt Right, right. Because you disagree with them or because they're abrasive. And like, where does that line get drawn? Because they spend a lot of time establishing that this character in Dashcam, she shows up at her friend's house, I think unannounced during COVID, slaps him in the face while he's sleeping, steals his car, 
and then is like, oh, hey, I need your help. Like, as my friend, I'm like, well, you're a terrible friend. Meanwhile, she's like spouting her like ridiculous, you know, political beliefs to her YouTube following while she's driving around uh, the neighborhood, I think, in London, where it is. And then she gets into trouble and needs help. And so you're starting to like chip away at the sort of like the outer facade of this abrasive personality. And you're really asking the audience to either come around and be like, this isn't a just because this person is this way. And I don't agree with sort of their ideologies. That doesn't mean I want this person to be hurt in this case. And so connecting that all the way back, it's like you see Hostel was doing something very similar, you know, 15 years prior. Right. And sort of asking you to address the stereotypes of these characters and ask the audience, like, are are these things enough for you to cheer for somebody to die? Because, yeah, because, you know, Eli Roth is a guy who, as you said, is very well versed in slashers, classic horror. And a lot of those (laughs) movies are built with large casts that have throwaway characters, characters that like, you know, they're going to be annoying and you kind of want them to die because you're you're watching the horror movie in part because you want to see the person get killed but there's always uh like a final girl or final guy there's always somebody that typically survives in the end in a slasher but there's so many throwaway characters that are like far less abrasive than the characters that we see in Hostel because they're only in the movie for a short period of time these aren't people that you spend any significant amount of time with and you had mentioned something about um consumption and how like this is sort of a story about our relationship to consumption and this older german man gets on the train with them and like this is right after mm-hmm. too yeah ollie has his pants down and they're taking um pictures of him with like his ass cheeks in the other guy's <laughs> face and i'm like yes this is very much bro behavior like I, if if you are unaware of it you never wanted to be the first person to fall asleep around a group of guys (laughs) that are like in their, you know, formative years, because if you're the first one to fall asleep, you're getting something drawn on your face. You're getting (laughs) something shoved somewhere that you don't want. Like that's just not, it's not good. So when I see this happening on the train, this guy's asleep and he's got ass cheeks in his face. I'm like, this tracks for me. Like I understand this uh, stereotype that is being portrayed here. Then the older German guy gets into the car with them and they all sort of like tone it down and they speak like normal people. They're not really Mm -hmm. invested in that. Hey, uh, like the show of machismo for the sake of one another, I guess. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point in that conversation where uh, Jay Hernandez character stops and like, it's like, no, I'm vegetarian. And right. so I wanted to ask you because it was such a weird moment for me. I'm like, is the vegetarian thing supposed to make me be like, oh, I have sympathy for him now because he's a vegetarian? Right. No, um, I actually when I did my review of this on um, Letterboxd, I was I was thinking of that. And I just feel like it's just like another commentary. You know, he's you know, like if you were to say like, I feel like, uh, you know, when they talk about food in this in this section, you know, you're kind of supposed to see food as like a stand-in just for bodies in general you know when he's talking about when the german man is talking because he knows what's going on he he wants to meet his food because he knows he's going to torture him later he wants to see this person who whose hand whose life is going to be in his hands 
Um, so, so he, so him being a vegetarian is, is kind of supposed to be ironic, I guess, because he doesn't seem to, you know, value (laughs) the things that he consumes, you know, in the same way, you know, like he's going on this trip and he's just like, yeah, we're going to have fun. And then we're going to go back to our real lives, the real world. I'm going to go to law school and you're going to write your thesis. And I, I, um, when I rewatched that this time, I kind of thought that was kind of like a interesting parallel to what the German guy says later when he's like, you know, I always wanted to be a surgeon, but they wouldn't let me. So I went to do business, which is boring, but being a surgeon is so much more cool. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. So like, they're, they're like, we're going to have all this, like, like hedonistic indulgence. And like, we're not going to like have like actual connections with these women. And then we're going to go back to our real lives. And like, once we get this out, you know, and this, this man, he, he's going to have this, you know, torture session with Josh. And then he's going to go back to his little six-year-old daughter and pretend like, you know, like nothing really happened or whatever, but he has this weird rationalization, like, Oh no, you know, I had this conversation with him, whatever. I, I actually value this person, you know, I don't know. Am I making any sense? (laughs) I feel like I'm all over the place. No, I think you do make sense. And that's why I was asking sort of about that comment about vegetarianism, because I read it as like ironic because you'd established all these characters as being basically douchebags. And, you know, 10 seconds before he says that line, he's like celebrating having his buddy's uh, ass cheeks in his other friend's face and laughing about it, you know, like it's the funniest thing on earth. And then when it's like, oh, this guy's eating meat. Well, I'm above that. I'm a vegetarian. And it's like, yeah, that's a very ironic statement coming from you, bro. So I, I was just sort of looking at that scene in the film as kind of like this turning point for all of them, because they're they're faced with a guy that ends up being you know, very um, central to the the torture element. But there it also like strips them out of that um, bravado for a second. Mm -hmm. And so to like talk down to a stranger in that way, it's like it'd be one thing to be like, you know, he's joking about the fork, but then to sort of be dismissive and to place himself above this person. But did you assume that it was like a judgment? Because that's all he said. He didn't say like, I'm vegetarian. So it's the it's the way that he, it's the way that he looked at him. He looked at him with like disgust. Well, I think he was just disgusted that he was using his hands, which is well, yeah. Thing. So that's that's my question: is like, is he disgusted in the fact that like he's eating meat and he's using this moment as sort of like a moral judgment of this man, or is he just like this dude's nasty and he's eating with his fingers and slurping down this like chicken and turkey right in front of my face? Well, I th- I think that's the thing about the movie is that you can interpret it either way. That's fair. Um, (laughs) but this, so this old man, I mean, he obviously becomes like a a much more central figure and they run into him again shortly afterwards at the bar and he is talking to Josh and he's, he's telling him this thing about sort of like 
sowing his wild oats and like having to make his own life choices. And right, right, right. This is after he sort of touched Josh on the train and Josh freaked out. And, you know, maybe as we had mentioned earlier, there's some like latent homosexuality there that he is really like freaking out about more than uh, he would let on to his friend. So he overreacts. Uh, and in this second interaction with the, the older German man and they're speaking at the bar, the old man also tells him. I chose the life that I did because like it gave me my daughter and mm -hmm. the way that I read that at first was that like because of what happened on the train and him sitting down and talking to Josh here is that this like older man chose to live a life with the woman so that he could have kids and so I was like right. okay maybe he is like gay and he's not um open about it but then as the film goes on and we sort of see like what he's really into i'm like okay is he just like really a serial killer that like chose to have this life as a as a wall of protection against him yeah. and then he gets this well he out. basically tells him that he's like mm -hmm. i wish i could be a surgeon and yeah. i feel like we know a lot of surgeons not i'm not saying a lot but there's definitely some surgeons who go into that profession so that they can maim people. <laughs> oh my god! You if know, you've never like, heard the podcast, Doctor Death. Like, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> so he's like, yeah, like, uh, I wish I could have been a surgeon, but I guess uh, they wouldn't let me. So I, I became a businessman. But I, it's great that I get to do this thing, and <laughs> and now I, I get to live that dream of being a surgeon. <laughs> Yeah, and he obviously like enjoys the torture element of it mm -hmm. quite quite a bit. So it's like he doesn't want to be a surgeon in the name of bettering people's lives or helping people. He just enjoys the cutting part of it. Right. And so in that um that moment of confession for him, I realized that like yeah, this is a guy who realistically is a serial killer and he's able to sort of satisfy that particular part of his life by having it be done in this very controlled fashion where he pays for it and then it's all like set up and cleaned up for him and then he just goes back to his regular life until it's time again for him to you know flex that serial killing muscle that he just can't get over Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I feel like, again, it could be read either way because, you know, it does seem like he's trying to make a move on Josh when he mm -hmm. puts his, his hand on his leg. Um, I Yeah, I don't know. But I do think uh, we're also supposed to assume like he is a serial killer, like you said, or he's somebody with um, just violent tendencies and he gets to. Uh, fulfill them by doing this <laughs> yeah and those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive either like he yeah could, he, he could be like hey you know i'm closeted <laughs> gay and i've i've married a woman so that i could have my kid and have my like private right. life and then i'm also a serial killer that likes to Which get away with it also so. not the greatest uh you know there's already that stigma in a lot of horror films but exactly. you know <laughs> and in real life if you look at john yeah. gacy or uh, jeffrey dahmer like right. that correlation is already in place before the time that this movie comes out um and right. it's been established you know 20 years before this movie actually so right. <laughs> uh, like i said they could they could both be true and it's possible that they likely are both true but um mm -hmm. 
You had also mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation about the story that Paxton is telling John at the time about. I think his name was Josh. Josh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're walking down the alley and he just sort of breaks into this story about seeing the girl drown. And I'm asking myself at the moment, I'm like, is this a story that is meant to make Paxton a more sympathetic character? Because I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think at that point in the film, he's like the most broy of the three of them. Like Ollie is just like, hey, I'm partying. I'm gonna go have right. like a good it's time. It's weird. With he's the kind girls. of comic relief, but he mm-hmm. did bring in that girl who was like clearly high and i guess he had some intent with her and even paxton is like yeah we can't do anything with that girl (laughs) but they kind of treat him as like this weird comic relief character who you don't even like he just like disappears in the beginning but yeah i agree with you um uh i think even uh quentin and eli were saying that that they felt like this scene is was really good because it existed for that but i also feel like it existed as like uh like a reason for why he would have gone back after he got out of there, you know, mm-hmm. um, why he would have gone back to save that woman um, when he heard her screaming. Um, yeah, cause he when, knew when he, that he would be haunted forever if he didn't try. And then it turns out to be um, a complete waste because when she sees her reflection, she kills herself. <laughs> Yeah, so that's an unfortunate uh, yeah. series of events there. But yeah, when you drew that parallel uh, of like it, it explains his motivation for going back. And I'm like, OK, I, I can get on board with that. But like in that particular scene where they're in the alley and he's telling that story, um, Josh says to him at the end of the story, like, why did you just think of that right now? And then they're interrupted by something. So right. It cuts. I was like, this is too intentional for it to be something that's just, uh, you know, a flippant sort of anecdotal story. I mean, he's thinking right. about these things for a reason, but he doesn't actually tell us why he's thinking about it. And then the, the story just kind of like keeps on going mm-hmm. from that point. And I mean, we're only, I think, 40 minutes into the film. Then they're looking uh, for Ollie because he had uh, he had disappeared on them at that point. Uh-huh. But that's still really I mean, in this movie, it's, you know, pretty deep in, but at 40 minutes, this is the first moment, I think, of actual. Like vulnerability. First vulnerability, but also I think we see Ollie's head like on uh, on the table. So it's like right. the, the first instance of um, the actual cost of like where they're at. Right. And there hasn't been any, I don't think, like actual on-screen violence yet. but. Right you see a human head that's been severed. And so like the implication is obviously that like he's died, he's been beheaded at this point. Which like, I feel like they shouldn't have done that. Cause I felt yeah. like not knowing exactly what happened to him makes it even scarier. Cause like, could you imagine, I mean, this is basically, I mean, I knew it was a horror film, but could you imagine going in and thinking it was just going to be like some Euro trip film? And then, right. <laughs> and then they find out, like you're going into this situation, like these characters and in a way, you kind of do because you're expecting Josh to be the one to survive, yeah. and all these other crappier guys. But it's it's the other way around. Um, so I think it does subvert your exp- expectations in that way. Like I said before, um, yeah, e- even if they had pushed the reveal of Ollie being dead until the point that they arrive at the dungeon, 
then uh-huh. I think that's maybe a slightly better time for it. But I, I I view it as, you know, we're fairly deep into the movie at that point and there has been no violence. So if you're in it for a horror movie, like mm-hmm. they just wanted to sort of show you that, oh, yeah, this guy is dead and he died in a very graphic fashion. Right. So, so buckle up because it's not going to get any easier from here. Right. I don't know. I just I, I wouldn't have done that because I when I rewatched it, I totally forgot, you know, I think probably because I was folding laundry. <laughs> I totally forgot that you saw a shot of his head. Or I wonder yeah. if maybe Netflix had like some sort of edited version of it. Because, yeah, I don't remember that. Uh-huh. Um, And I just I feel like not knowing exactly what happened to him would have been even scarier. And then, you know, when you actually see what happens to Josh, you, you can kind of put two and two together. Like, oh, okay, he is definitely dead and he's next. And the only reason he didn't die instantly is because he got trapped in like that custodial closet. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I had forgotten that the way that he sort of figures out what's happening is, you know, they check him back into the room and he goes in there and there's two new girls doing the same uh-huh. thing. Oh, we're going to the sauna. Come join us. And he has that flash of deja vu where is like, no, we just went through this. We right. this just happened to us. So something's definitely off here. And right. uh, that sort of sets him out on his path of discovery. And then by the time that he gets down to the actual like torture chambers, he is sort of seeing everything piece by piece. And one of those things is, you know, his friend laid out. So it's like you could have had him right. stumble across Ollie's head in the process of uh, doing all that and just sort of bury that until a little bit later. But you right. I mean, it's 40. I think it was like 45 minute mark where uh, mm-hmm. jo- Josh is in the chair. So you're halfway through the movie at that point, And now we're about to see uh, sort of the like hit the ground running with the torture. Right. And that scene was still horrible. Like the, oh, yeah. the Achilles scene, like is so mm-hmm. gnarly and I could totally see you're 45 minutes into this movie. You're watching like, Hey, broy Euro trip. There's boobs everywhere. Drugs, uh, like Czechoslovakian disco music playing. Like <laughs> the, these guys are having a good time, whether or not you as the audience are really like, having that good time with them, you can easily observe that they're having the kind of time that they want to have. And then all of a sudden you're knee deep in really, really, really graphic, well done uh, torture. And Mm -hmm. the practical effects are so good in this movie. I I forgot how good they were. And (laughs) that's why I had to spend like an hour just watching like cat videos after oh. this was over because I was like I need to laugh at something because I can't go to bed with this being the last thing in oh, my I'm so, so desensitized <laughs> I, I was like oh, okay I'm gonna go eat dinner now <laughs> well the crazy thing is like I've I've sat down and like I've been curious and I'm like oh there's like open heart surgery video so it's like I'm watching an actual human being operated mm-hmm. on and that's not bothering me at all but I've gained a new found appreciation or I've sort of revitalized my appreciation for practical effects because of sort of the advent of 4k technology where you look at something where the digital effects uh or the cgi was really good at the time of like 2005 or 2006 and then you see it 10 years later and it's like wow the cgi did not age well at all right right, it it was such a jarring moment when i watched transformers like i think it was on fx so i saw transformers in theaters the first one 
Yeah, I was like, ah, the visual effects are fine. They look good. It's what you would expect of a Transformers movie. And then like six, seven years down the line, it hits FX and it's just on one day. And I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll put it on. And I'm like, wow, the visual effects look terrible. So it's the investment of doing things the old fashioned way that still holds up. Because I think even the scene where he gets his hand chainsawed, like they really chainsawed something there it wasn't an actual human hand, but they saw right. through something. And there's only one v- like VFX digital shot that I spotted in the whole mm-hmm. movie. It was so- when she blew him from the train. Exactly. Because they can't. Did you know when they're on the train? Like that was like a green screen. Like in the, back, the, in the, background. Um, the landscape. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. How do you feel about doing some trivia? Oh, yeah, sure. All right. Time for trivia. Trivia. Okay, so question number one. Writer-director Eli Roth has a brief cameo in this movie uh, as one of the bar patrons in Amsterdam as he laughs at his friend who's choking uh, on bong smoke. What other famous directors have cameos in this film? There's two of them. Oh, well, I know Quentin is the guy who... um... They uh, when they're at their first hostel in Amsterdam, he was like, uh, there's a what does he say? There's a um, he won't let them in because it's too late. What's the word? I can't think of the word, but that was Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, Shirtless German. And then, and then, and, oh, yes, I know the <laughs> other one. I know the other one. I'm sorry. Um, it's Takashi Mike. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 who is it? Yeah. <laughs> ding, ding, He's the yeah. guy. He's the guy who's like, oh, yeah, like go in there but be careful or whatever which i feel like is the whole reason he even goes in there like honestly like the whole entire thing just kind of mirrors you know like like oh you know if you're going somewhere shady and you're a woman you need another woman to be like is this is this good are we Mm -hmm. okay so he needed another man to be like yeah it's okay go in there but be careful (laughs) yeah and he warns him he's like you could spend all your money in there and then with the benefit of hindsight (laughs) and having seen this film before i'm like oh he just got done with like a night of tons of murdering and torturing and he's really had such a good time (laughs) that he's warning this new guy like oh you might go broke buying a bunch of people to murder and kill (laughs) and torture in there so Yeah. yeah I think at that point in the movie, too, by the time we run into Mike in that scene, he still hasn't been down to the torture chamber. So it's like we know there's something shady going on somewhere in the background. But I don't think at that point they've established the sort of like for profit torture business aspect. Of right. It. So no, they don't do it until, until you find out with him, until you find out with um, what's that actor's name, the guy from Entourage. And he kind of basically explains it to him because he's such uh, a problem now. <laughs> yeah, the Rick Hoffman, the American mm-hmm. client. Yeah, his portrayal of that character reminded me a lot of like a super coked out Bob Morton from RoboCop. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. In the special features, he was like, I thought this was a comedy. I think he was joking, but I was just like, yeah, you kind of played it like it was a comedy, and it worked. You yeah, know, <laughs> his scene is definitely where the movie finds some comedic. Uh, plateau to like rest on for a minute before Mm -hmm. it gets back into the rest of it uh (laughs) question number two hostel took over the number one spot at the box office when it released on january 6th of 2006 with about a 20 million dollar opening weekend which late 2005 release did it replace in january january of 06 so it was 
taking down or is taking over the top spot from a film that was released sort of for Christmas season the year before. Oh, the end of its I don't run. know. Christmas with the cranks. <laughs> <laughs> I I really don't know. It was the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch. And the I was going to guess that. I was going <laughs> to guess that. <laughs> And I guess uh, the comparison came because uh, Narnia, I guess, was like a two hundred million dollar movie right. where uh, Hostel was like what four or five million dollars and right. gross twenty on its opening weekend. So uh, to be able to be that kind of film and take down uh, a huge franchise film with a big budget and a big release and a wide right. berth that and it was dominating all the way through December from its release I think at the beginning of December right. so it was an interesting and like yet it still has this guard. terrible reputation I'm like what this is the highest grossing <laughs> movie and like people are like ah it's torture porn it's gross <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some people just don't have the stomach for uh, horror in general. And I know like Roger Ebert notoriously hated horror films uh, mm -hmm. as a whole. So it's like if you, if you can't get past like a certain element of it, I, I can see that you're not going to get to the other side. Uh, you're not going to get to the end of the, the, the excuse me, the light at the end of the tunnel because mm -hmm. you're just like, nah, this tunnel's dark and creepy and I'm not going in there. No way. Right. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of like violence, you know, it, it, you can interpret it as being unnecessary, but it kind of has, you know, this similar like like we're seeing a lot of like uh, commentary about sex in film, you know, mm -hmm. like I feel like most of the time it serves a purpose. You know, it's not just something yeah. that's completely necessary and it's meant to, you know, like it's not meant to be enjoyed just because it's violent or because it's sexual. Yeah, I agree. There are there's like um, as I've watched uh, one of the watch parties we did for the film club at the very beginning, it was me, Donald and Cosmo. And we were watching Friday the 13th part four, I think. And that's a movie where it's like it's kind of dumb and not overly serious. And some of the reason that you're watching is to see the creativity that goes into the practical effects work right. for the killing. So like the intent of the the not just the presentation uh and the design of the kills is is very different than like something with hostile and i think in hostile violence at least in this case is at least partially the point and with a movie like uh that friday the 13th movie it's like oh this is this was such a great use of practical effects right. like how did mm -hmm. they do this scene where this guy's got a saw through his neck in hostile you're not meant to sort of break that down and try and diagnose how this was done you know <laughs> you're you're meant to react to it viscerally and uh -huh. it's meant to be disturbing and i think it accomplishes that because you know i mean i just watched martyrs not that long ago either and hostile still oh. has some very very graphic scenes to me that i was like oh yeah this is gross like, it's just gross. <laughs> it's hard to watch. Right. Like, the scene where they cut her eyeball. That was yeah. a bit, like... Huh, I, I imagine that's what an eyeball, eyeball looked like after somebody took a chainsaw to it. But it was just like, yeah, this is definitely not real. <laughs> yeah. Right? I know. It's 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 very much not real. But, the like, it's not... I guess it's not the design of the prosthetic as much as it is Jay Hernandez reacting to it in that scene. Cause she's like moving around and he's like, Oh no, I have the scissors and I have to cut it. But he's very apprehensive about like when right. he goes in for the cut. And so mm -hmm. it's that moment where I can imagine 
filming that was probably fun because it's like such a weird thing to do, but to then, you know, roll action on that and to like have to be disgusted, but also have to accomplish this thing in order to get her out of there. Uh, it's a very like functionally gross scene and it works well. All right. All right. Question number three. Mm-hmm. How many languages were spoken throughout the film in total? Um, well, I'm guessing Dutch. Um, and I'm pretty sure they spoke German. Um, they spoke Czech. Um, they spoke English, of course. Uh, so is that it? Well, you got four of them, but there was actually nine in total. So as you Yo. mentioned, English, German, <laughs> Dutch, Czech, but also Spanish, Japanese, Slavic. Well, Japanese, uh, yeah. Icelandic and Russian. Right. And Russian, because he sings that song in Russian. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he's he keeps talking about the sneeper in his Icelandic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I read something like that. It was pronounced or it was written incorrectly in the subtitles so that it wouldn't get confused with the American word for sniper. And I was yeah. like, okay, I guess it's it's just written differently. And it was uh, put in the subtitles phonetically along with oh, some okay. mistakes in the subtitles. Uh, yeah, just but I thought it was interesting. Like, so like sneaker is basically like pussy, but like they call it clit. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. That's what I thought, too, because as he was talking about it, sort of the way that the implication of the word is, is they're talking about yes pussy but (laughs) when he when he stops and like actually explains it like he has to like tell him like oh no it's clitoris so it's like which like like why would you use that word (laughs) because like they're because they're like are europeans more concerned with the clit is that what it is (laughs) (laughs) maybe but uh, yeah because if you're trying to establish these guys as like broy, it makes sense for them to be like hey let's go get pussy right that's very much like american bro type of thing to do but it's like if you were to apply that and be like we're gonna go get clit it just doesn't like have the (laughs) same ring to it if you're trying to establish like these guys are certain type of guys yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's no way to know. One of the sort of things that um kind of permeates the whole film is the the use of anti-gay slurs whether right. they're yeah. using the f-word or just kind of flippantly calling things gay uh like like that fanny pack is gay. Like what are you right? talking about? <laughs> right? <Fanny pack>. <laughs> <laughs> He said subtitles is gay when when they were in the hotel he's like he's trying to check out at the desk and there's like something on in the background and he's like, how are we supposed to understand that without subtitles? That's gay. And I was like, (laughs) so it's like they're throwing that word around. And like I had to tell myself at that point, I was like, this is such a specific dialogue choice that mm-hmm. I said Eli Roth is very intentionally like bro right, right, right. all these guys right? right because there was a time in uh American vernacular where just right. you know I grew up in the 80s and 90s where it was like oh if I had a fanny pack they'd be like yeah that's gay right right so or like the, no homo <laughs> exactly so the use of that word and the use of um sort of presenting the word in that way within the context of these guys all trying to out 
bravado one another mm-hmm. uh, sends a very specific message and it being intentional i think uh serves a much bigger purpose than if it were like, oh, this is a sign of the times and we're trying to maybe right. mimic the kind of conversations that we had. And I'm sure like Eli Roth has been around, you know, moments where he's had conversations that probably uh, echoed a lot of similar dialogue between guys. Honestly, the commentary just, between him and the producers was was like that at times, like not full on. Not surprising. <laughs> I'm not surprised, um, yeah. <laughs> but it does like it raises uh, sort of, again, that that moral question of like, is this person worthy or um, is this person deserving of the fate that befalls them just because they're young, immature, arrogant mm-hmm dismissive entitled all of those things like these are not characters that you generally would look up to for any reason but when it comes down to them getting tortured like do you want to see them get tortured because you had mentioned like oh you're just wanting to you were kind of i thought it was going to be like a friday the 13th four sort of thing like oh these silly effects you know but Mm -hmm. it's 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 something that makes you empathize with them because this is the most terrifying situation you know i know a lot of people are like yeah i don't want to go to eastern europe now which is (laughs) i can't imagine how uh somebody from eastern europe would feel about this movie um but yeah this is the most terrifying situation for for any expat you know to go to a country and for you to get sold to be tortured you know um that's a horrible fate to befall anybody and i mean these guys are not great guys, but I mean, the worst thing that they do is they throw around some derogatory language and right. they womanize a little bit, but also like right. not not exactly like in the way that some other womanizing has been done on screen before. Right. So it's like, yeah, they're not great, but they're not the kind of people that when you see in like a much broader context, like these aren't characters that uh, you enjoy watching get hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an important distinction, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and like you said, it, it is kind of it does kind of seem like a front that they put on like, oh, you're gay, you're gay. And it's just like, what are you even talking about? Like, it's just like they have to put on this front in order to, you know, I don't know, uh, assure their uh, sexuality kind of reminds me, you know, a lot of uh, Itumama Tambien. Mm. <laughs> just the way that they would talk about things and um and uh you know and then of course that is definitely a, bu- a buddy movie with uh <laughs> repressed homosexuality but um you know i i definitely think it was intentional on eli roth's part yeah and i think i mean at the age that these guys i assume are i mean they can't be older than i would assume 25 maybe the other maybe ollie's in his 30s because he's got a six-year-old kid and he's just right he's back out on the on the trails again but i would imagine that the other two guys are maybe 25 at the oldest and there is a lot of masculinity questions sort of um and social cues that are getting presented to you like in that age 
because now you're a guy you've gone through high school. So it's like you've kind of gotten out of like whether or not you were being bullied and picked on or you were the one doing the bullying. There's a lot of uh, self-definition making of what is and isn't masculine sort of in those 20s as your brain starts to finally solidify its development as you head towards 25. So it's not surprising to me to see sort of like the behaviors that they um, bestow upon one another and themselves and sort of the rigid definitions that they go into these conversations with of like what makes them a man and what makes them masculine or what makes them uh, more masculine than the friend that's sitting next to them. When in reality, it's like, you know, if these guys were all 40, like that stuff just wouldn't be happening. You know, they'd be all if they're really friends, they would be there to like support one another, hopefully, and have each other's backs. And I think it is a sign of like, if you're if you're a guy in your 40s, and you're still growing out like this, you just haven't uh, matured yet. And so I think casting these guys in a light that uh, intentionally, and repeatedly shows them as immature people, I -hmm. think it allows us as the audience to be like, this is an incomplete view of who these people are. So yes, we're not supposed to like them, but there is also, it's not like a a closed loop at that point. It's like, we're seeing them on a few days of their vacation where they get to really indulge every fantasy that they've ever had. And of course their behavior is not going to be uh, above board when they're in that mode and casting them in that light is that important sort of like linchpin for this entire film because you could make them much worse characters and then you just like cheer watching them die basically but that's a much different kind of story that you're telling uh versus this story that's spiraling out of post 9-11 post Abu grave i remember stories coming out around this time as well there's a news story that uh american passengers abroad were uh using canadian flags on their luggage so that they were not uh readily identified as americans (laughs) so there was this large uh fear coming out of international travel and like what the the sort of the rest of the world sort of viewed uh americans abroad and I mean, there's films like Teresa's that came after this. Um, Mm -hmm. The Ruins is another one where there are a group of foreigners that sort of trespass on land that they shouldn't be trespassing on. And sort of like, again, it's like white people, entitlement, foreign country. Uh, There's another one that... uh, that I can't think of off the top of my head for some reason. Oh, Human Centipede is another one where foreigners get right. in over their head. Um, uh, Wolf Creek, I think, is another one. But like Hostel is sort of the one that I don't I don't know if it realistically started it, but I think it was the one that's the easiest to look back on now and say that this is sort of the beginning of that genre of horror films right yeah i don't have um much expertise on all those (laughs) but yeah i I definitely think that this started a genre 
there's uh, Eden Lake is another one where uh, it's 2008. So a couple of years after this, a Michael Fassbender movie where it's like this couple just gets tortured for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The one I'm thinking of is Perfect Getaway, where it's like a group, I think, of like two or three couples that are on vacation and like one of them is evil. But again, it's like you remove the safety of being in an environment where you're comfortable and where you mm-hmm. know you're safe and you sort of can go through all of the regular motions of, hey, you know, we're uh, we're in our, our comfort zone. And so by putting these characters abroad and really putting them at the mercy of whoever just happens to be around them, it is uh, it's a naturally sort of uncomfortable place to be. And then you fold in all of those elements of not just the rest of the world disliking Americans at this particular time in history, but also these particular Americans that you're putting abroad are uh, grating and not necessarily the most likable characters. So it's like the perfect storm for why Hostel, I think, was able to sort of capture the imagination of people at the time that it came out. Um, and Infinity Pool is another one of these movies that's more recent that sort of taps into the same um, thing. The Cronenberg Jr. <laughs> Cronenberg Jr. That's right. Uh, it is Brandon, right? <laughs> I watched Possessor for the first time a couple days ago. Oh, awesome! Awesome. Did that's you like a it? really good um, use of practical effects. Yeah, I mean, they gave Andrea Riseborough a huge penis in that movie, so. <laughs> Definitely great use of practical effects, uh, but Possessor is awesome. It's very well done. And I yeah. think I think Newman is covering that on uh, his show or it's coming out soon or just recorded it. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but if you like Possessor, keep an eye out for that. Shout out to okay. Newman at Movies for Days. So we do typically get into Critics Corner coming up semi soon. But uh, mm-hmm. is there anything that we that we haven't really gone over yet that you had in your notes that you wanted to make sure that you get in there um, before we sort of like get the ball rolling towards the end of the show. There's always, there's, there's a lot of things. There is one question I wanted to ask you before we at least start the decline or uh, our descent to land the, the kids, I guess, which is called the bubblegum gang. Um, (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) I mean, I think we're supposed to be terrified of them, but yeah, but we talk about moments of levity in this film and <laughs> that moment where Josh is sort of confronted by them out on the street, like the music playing during that is comical. Like it's it's very clearly, I think, communicated that this is supposed to be funny. But right. then when that comes back into play at the end, it's like, you know, Jay Hernandez. They, a bag of they candy. really get those guys. Like they, do. <laughs> they are not afraid. Those guys had guns and they were like. Yo, we got bubble gum, so we're mm-hmm. gonna do whatever we want for the bubble gum. <laughs> yeah, they were so happy to get the gum that they're just like, "All right, well, we're gonna kill these guys for you now." Uh, <laughs> so clearly, those kids are much more dangerous than uh, it is let on at the very beginning when we're introduced to them, and it sort of does come across as this comical thing. And even in the moment where they sort of just interfere with the chase, which would uh-huh. be enough, right? That's all you need. Uh-huh. You just have to get away. And so you you get the kids to be a distraction. Yeah, okay, that works mm-hmm. totally fine. And then Eli Roth decides to up the ante there and be like, no, these kids are a product of this environment as well. And uh, they're 
crushing this guy's skull in with a rock. Uh, yeah. I think they stabbed the other guy in the head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, Eli said he had so much fun with those kids on set. Like, they were just hilarious. They were, like, breakdancing and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, well, what about the end credits? Um, the audio at the end credits. Uh, you stuck around for that, right? I mean, yeah, it was rolling, but what was the audio? I wasn't. Oh, you didn't. As close oh, attention. that was like one of the best parts. It's um, you know, when he goes inside that building and he sees Josh's body on the slab, and mm-hmm. she's like, "Yo," he's and he he's just like, "Oh, you're terrible, you whore, you bitch." She's like, "I I get a lot of money for you, mm-hmm. so that makes you my bitch now." Mm-hmm. And he plays that. He plays that um that audio at the end the end credits um i don't i feel like he was inspired by some other older slasher movie um i think i heard him say that in the podcast um so i just thought that was an interesting creative choice so um yeah i don't know i feel like that line had a lot of meaning and commentary to it just the the fact that he chose to play that at the end yeah that's a good point like i had it on and i was like okay like i'm just like finishing up my notes here as the credits roll and i guess i just didn't like pay close attention to that um but i appreciate you pointing that out because now i feel like i need to go back and watch the end credits and hear that again uh and i was like did they remix it did they turn it into a song or something um i don't know but i'm sure somebody has (laughs) (laughs) um like i i was like uh when i first watched this I'm, i'm like i'm sure somebody's gonna see her as like some sort of like Amy Dunn type of figure and like mm. misinterpret this movie completely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, no, I'm surprised that I even heard it. Cause I think the first time I watched this was on Netflix and you know, Netflix doesn't usually roll the credits, but I guess they thought this movie was important enough that they should include that for, for that part. Hmm. All right. I'll have to check it out. I watched it on Pluto TV and Pluto is the worst. <laughs> so, I mean, I like that it has like live TV and movies and stuff like that. But uh, there was a lot of commercials. And the one commercial that kept popping up was this one about flavored batteries. And I was like, are what? we really are we really at the point in human history where we have to flavor our batteries so that children don't eat them? And apparently, With yes, what? Because- <laughs> I don't know. It's probably like that stuff you put on your nails to like stop biting your nails. I think yeah, uh, I always like bitter. the smell of nails. So um, I'm <laughs> like nail polish. <laughs> Is that what you mean? Like nail polish? I don't no, know. There's like it's like a bitter thing that like so people that are nail biters, it's like a clear gloss that you put on. Oh, your nails, OK, I think I know when, what you're talking about. Yeah. But when you bite it, it's supposed to be like very abrasive and bitter. So it like trains you to not bite your fingernails anymore but i guess like the commercial is this little girl grabs like the remote and she's holding it and she's kind of like swaying and she looks like it's her toy and then her and her dad are like having this tug of war over the remote and then it's like hey new uh duracell batteries are copper coated so that way uh it discourages children from swallowing the batteries and i'm like what have we really arrived at this point in human history uh, and they just kept showing that commercial over and over. So uh, it was. Did you used to suck on batteries as a kid? No. <laughs> oh, I did. Okay, so I, I guess it makes sense then. It makes a lot more sense than. But I, I wouldn't thought. swallow them. I don't know. They're just like I kind of like chemical 
you know, taste. It's a little um, coppery and a little metallic. Yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. So these were like the disc batteries, uh, like the lithium sort of like oh, okay. disc style That's batteries. Weird. Yeah. Those are like so small that, yeah, you could swallow them, but like your child will still have to take the remote, like open it up, take the battery out, then eat it. Like, like you should be paying attention to your kid. <laughs> yeah. Like I get that, like, hey, this is like in the name of child safety and stuff. And like when you're designing toys, you want them to be a certain size so the kids don't swallow it, et cetera, et cetera. But still, like we have flavored batteries in 2023. So. <laughs> it was just a very alarming because uh, I don't really see t- like TV with commercials anymore. And then so right. to see something on Pluto is like this is a commercial that I'm not going to see on terrestrial TV if I watched it anyway. So right. seeing all these weird commercials for different products and I'm like, wow, these batteries have actually existed since 2020. That's kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But that app sucks because it always crashes. Um, mm-hmm. I've had that issue with it at least. Okay, so before we get to Critics Corner, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. I think we've had a very uh, detailed (laughs) discussion about this that will hopefully address a lot of the concerns and the conversation that was coming out of uh, the group chat. And I I told them, I was like, well, now I feel like I have to live up to some notion of (laughs) of this film that has been crafted here. Like I'm by, I'm by no means an expert on this movie Uh at all. So I was just going into it. I was like, well, Jamila said she was like preparing and she was reading (laughs) and stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of bad movies that I like. And again, I don't think this is a bad movie. I gave this four stars out of five. Because I think this is a great movie. (laughs) And I was so surprised. Like you go on Letterboxd and it's like 2.6. I'm like, what? Like, not even, like, a three. It's not that bad, in my it's opinion, not. at least. It's not. It's like, um, I I wouldn't say this is a bad movie. I could understand why people don't like it. That's for sure. Right. I, could, I could understand, like, uh, if you don't like it and you're going to respond and give it a, a low rating, then, yeah, I can totally understand that, too. But I think, like, if you step back and look at, uh, like, the quality elements, I think that's strong enough to get it uh, above like the halfway point for me, at least. So I want to ask you before we get to the critics corner, because we'll get to see what uh, the critics really had to say about this film at the time. Mm -hmm. When you think back on this movie, since you went into it sort of (laughs) uh, anticipating a movie where you got to enjoy the characters uh, dying in a way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In a slashery type of way. Is there uh, a particular practical effect or a moment in the film that like really stood out to you more than the others? Was there one kill that was like, wow, that was like super impressive or anything like that? Oh, um, I mean, it has to be like this is a moment where you're just like you're all in and you're like, man, like this is horrible. This happened. And also step on it. Like (laughs) when he runs over those women who Mm -hmm. basically cause him and his friends to <laughs> die and you're just like yeah like this is a movie that's anti-violence but it's also like like yeah these people deserve <laughs> they're just desserts because like what the heck you know um yeah when he runs them over um when those kids are attacking those goons it's just like like you're either like screaming or you're laughing like crazy like it's just so strange it's so strange (laughs) or like just i mean like again it it doesn't look that great but you're just so like shocked that it happens when kana throws herself in front of the train you're just like oh wow like he really went and he saved her but it was all for nothing because she i mean honestly she was probably in like a state of shock after that happened so she probably wasn't in like 
a proper state of mind, but it's just like, oh, wow. <laughs> and he still has to get out of the situation. Um, and thankfully he does, you know, and then uh, also the part where he finds the guy and um, he follows him to that subway uh, mm-hmm. bathroom and he basically kills him like in a similar fashion to how uh, that guy killed Josh, you know, without even knowing it. <laughs> yeah, he actually like enacts vengeance, right, which, which he hadn't done necessarily uh like he, yeah, he does run the girls over with the car, but at the same time, and uh, Alexi is one of them uh, that he hits. With oh the car right, and he's well. there too. Yeah, I would have been seeing red too. Like, oh yeah. my god, like this is a whole organization. These people actually set me up. They, they like actually sent me to the slaughter. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't let this happen to somebody else. Yeah, and in that moment, he's in the car. Like, he's also in the midst of uh, fleeing from some people that are chasing right. him. So it's like it's kind of a necessity that he has to uh go forward in the car right. regardless and and then he goes and then he goes in reverse and gets i don't even know yes. how he knew she was still alive <laughs> <laughs> he circled back around and ran her over so brutally yeah uh so he's like he's having this curve of where like he's exacting his vengeance but then i guess in the scene where he finally like confronts the guy in the bathroom cuts his fingers off gives him a swirly in the toilet and uh because right. it's like he doesn't, he doesn't even him. say anything right he doesn't <laughs> he even doesn't. say anything to him yeah he's just like this has got to be done mm-hmm. <laughs> i think he says something to like uh to get him to put his hand on the ground where he grabs it and cuts it under the stall but i don't know he exactly puts what he the said. card there he oh just, that's like, right puts the card there and he's like and like that that should have been that guy's sign like i'm about to die but yeah, this can't be dumb. good <laughs> <laughs> So I, I guess from the from the perspective of uh, going into it, expecting to to want to see these guys die to then finding sympathy for them and to then see him uh, enacting his vengeance on. Yeah. These people, like, are you are you cheering for him to, like, kill all these people at the end of the movie? I'm I don't like it's so weird. Like, as I was saying that, like, I sound like such a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just, it's such a thrill ride. You're just like, what the heck? Like, if I were in this situation, yeah, I would run over those girls. And yeah, I would, I, I don't know if I would necessarily be stalking that guy, but I probably would really be pissed and I probably would, you know, not be in my right mind, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just this situation where, like, like, you feel like you're him, you know? And you're just like, this is crazy. This is crazy bananas. Like... I don't even, I can't even, it's cathartic, basically, is what it is. And and, and then you start to question, like, why do I feel like this is, you know, cathartic? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I just enjoy the film. <laughs> well, I think one of the points that uh, you raised and sort of we've uh, come back to a couple times is sort of about this notion of uh, deservedness. And mm-hmm we you're kind of put in a position where you are looking at these characters that are these stereotypes that are offensive and you kind of want them to to pay for it and then when faced with the reality of what uh them paying for that actually means there's a pretty clear distinction that they're not deserving of the violence that is inflicted upon them but then uh-huh. in turn, 
we are then like cast into the last probably what 30 minutes of the movie maybe even a little bit less where it's Mm -hmm. much faster paced and they're escaping and he's you know shot a guy in the head he shot another guy in the chest a couple of times uh he's he's killed several people on his way out and it's gone from a necessity where he's got to shoot the guy that's going to kill him. Then he's got to shoot the guy that's coming in to check on him. And then the further he gets away from that, the more his motivations become uh, revenge based. And so now we're, we're with this character who is now our main character and he is uh, on a journey of retribution Mm -hmm. and in the process, like he's sort of losing himself in it, but we're now, as the audience also kind of on his side where it's like the people that he's killing are actually deserving of. I mean, yeah. Their yeah. It's like a, like a kind of like a eat the rich, uh, sort mm-hmm. of analogy in my opinion. I was going to say something and I forgot, but I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it comes to you, please just let me know and we'll circle back to it. But the two scenes I wanted to just touch on before we get into critics corner is the one that was the most disturbing. I think, for me, wasn't even any of the the visceral violence. It wasn't the fingers mm-hmm. or the chainsaw leg. It's where he's vomiting with the ball gag in his mouth. Oh, That's really? It's just so disgusting to me. And <laughs> like the thought of like in that moment, like you don't know if he's going to choke and die on his own vomit. Right. That's why he goes and he brings the like he has to unleash the ball gag. And then he's trying to like stick his fingers in his mouth to clear mm-hmm. the vomit out. And he's trying to right. bite him. But that scene where like the barf is just spewing out from around right. the ball gag is so nasty. <laughs> what? Uh, what? Like that scene is really interesting because like, first of all, are you I'm not super like I could have looked it up, but are you uh, curious what he said to that guy? In German, um, I read like a sort of brief transcription, and he said something along the lines of, uh, "If you do this, like my my face will haunt you for the rest of your life," kind of thing. Oh, yeah, and that was kind of that's kind of like a callback to what he was saying before of that girl. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like it's a moment that I feel like having subtitles for would have been beneficial because really? the way he conveys the message it's like he's begging for his life but yeah when you actually like see the translation of the words it isn't so much like please don't kill me it's warning that like if you do this like you're never going to forget it you're never going to live it down you're going to be haunted by this for the rest of your life but his delivery of it like he's sobbing when he says it so it comes across as this thing of like hey please don't kill me like look i know you maybe think this about me but like look i speak your native language and i'm just trying to appeal to you on a level that we have some common ground uh, i like so- yeah I, I like the line but i'm okay with it being a mystery but i i do like it cuz it is like a callback which kind of makes you question you know like we were saying before like he kills those girls and he kind of has to because they see him and he needs to get out of that country um but then when he kills that guy he doesn't have to do that so mm-hmm. he's basically accepting like this is gonna haunt me for the rest of my life but you know maybe it won't as much because you know this guy kind of you know is is evil <laughs> you know 
Yeah, and I it's don't like, know. Well, you see, he starts by killing the people with a gun, and then he mm-hmm. uses a car, and then by the time mm-hmm. he gets down to the final guy, it's like he's doing it's this a, essentially with his his bare hands yeah. almost. He's he's drowning the guy in the toilet before he slits his throat. So it's a, mm-hmm. a very intimate act of violence in that final right. scene, and it is like, did his experience with being on the receiving end of that violence change him? To the point where he now like understands the, I guess, not necessity, but uh, the value in ending this person's life. Right. Or is he um, just and like, you notice he like cut off his fingers, like yeah. it kind of seemed like in the same way that his were cut off. <laughs> he did. Yeah. I saw those things off with a scalpel. Uh, and then I guess the last, the last scene, it kind of like made me laugh a little bit, but you know, what? that says about me, but it's so where Kana, she jumps in front of the train. That's not the part that's funny. It's like, she sees herself. She realizes oh, those people. Yes. <laughs> I was like the last thing we see. Uh, well, it's not the exact last thing, but she jumps and then we see the blood spray. And it's like, there's just two grandmas like standing on the right. platform. that just get sprayed with blood. And I'm like, why did Eli Roth have to spray those two grandmas with blood? And then you see her body like getting completely, completely chewed up underneath the train right. uh and they that react moment with like the grandmas. such europeans <laughs> like if that were to happen anywhere else people would be freaking out like they're just like oh wow that that was so impolite that woman mm. just another tuesday at the train <laughs> <Right>. station <laughs> uh but yeah i just found it funny that the people that he decided to like be front row for the splash no, that, section that were these two funny. older ladies <laughs> Okay, I think we're at a good point where we go to Critics Corner now, and then we can really see what the the horrible things uh, that right. all the critics had to say. <laughs> and honestly, I'm looking at it right now. It's not that bad. Um, oh, it really? has a Metascore of 55. So that's, you know, it's in the realm of it qualifies for this show, but is also <laughs> not uh, the lowest I've ever seen on this show by, by 50 points, probably. What so, was the lowest? What movie was that? I think it was Biodome had either a one or a zero as the oh. lowest. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> do yeah. you like that movie? I do. Uh, it's <laughs> it's like stupid and goofy, but uh, like William Atherton has a really great performance in it. And it's I think if it were made like today with sort of the knowledge of stuff like climate change and pollution and all that stuff that uh, has a much bigger media footprint than it did back in the 90s when that got made. Uh, but I who made it, that? Um, I don't know. I don't remember who directed Biodome, but it was like capitalizing. It wasn't Emmerich, was it? I don't think so. Uh, but it was capitalizing at the time on uh, Polly Shore's marketability. So <laughs> he was like he had in the army now and son-in-law right around then as well. So it was like just striking while the iron's hot. And it was actually uh, Jason Bloom was the director. So oh, is that is that um Bloomhouse Bloom? Wait, I don't what am I talking? Believe so. That's Jason Blum, but this uh, Oh, okay. <laughs> this gentleman did Viva Lost Nowhere and uh Overnight Delivery, which I do like a lot, which is a very young Reese Witherspoon and Paul Rudd uh just kind of like on a road trip rom-com. Mm-hmm. So, that's like my that's my rom-com baseline right there is that kind of movie. And you haven't done any um Roland Emmerich movies on on your show? No, surprisingly not, because we did oh. we did the '98 Godzilla for um, Kaijun when we were doing film club. So that's a movie <laughs> that probably would have qualified pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> Is that but... the one with um, um, Sarah Connor? Is that the one? 
Uh, I think it's something different. No, Sarah Connor is not in that. Is she in a King Kong? She's (laughs) yes, I think so. Okay. I I would have to look that up though. Uh, Yeah. Oh no, wait. Uh, Yes, Linda Hamilton is in. I believe the sequel to King Kong, which was a 1980s movie. I think it was the sequel to De Laurentiis's King Kong from the 70s. Okay. King Kong Lives. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the one that Linda Hamilton is in. I think that was on like uh, a few months ago. It was on like YouTube for like free, and I started watching it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those where you want to watch it for free when you have the chance because <laughs> King Kong, I believe, gets a heart transplant in that and finds like a King Kong wife as well. So it's a very interesting uh, take on King Kong. In he general. doesn't fall in love with Linda Hamilton. No, Linda Hamilton has okay. her own love interest, and so they got to get Kong his own love interest as well. And I'm pretty sure there's a female Kong and a heart transplant. This is something I would have to check with Nix, uh, because he's he's very much into the King Kong universe. So I could ask him some of the details. Okay. <laughs> but this is not a discussion about King Kong. I mean, right. it, it can be. <laughs> um, but we're gonna start with the New York Times because they gave this movie a 40 on a scale of a hundred. And it says Hostel oh. is motivated by an adolescent adolescent urge to shock. And while it's true that no civilized person will remain unscathed by the film's relentless bigotry, this is one of the most misogynistic films ever made. Mr. <laughs> Roth's gory spectacles are too calculated to deliver the transgressive jolts they so obviously seek. So I'll say at least the New York Times understood that, hey, there's some more uh, mechanics at play than simple kind of like slasher elements like they know it's not a slasher uh they know Mm -hmm. that some of the motivation is to shock and of course it is like the the visceral scenes are very visceral uh Mm -hmm. and like the the term torture porn was coined because of this movie and it seems to enjoy its uh, use of practical effects, which, you know, is a thing that is not uncommon in horror movies uh, altogether. But it seems to fall into the camp of Eli Roth is dumb and making a movie that he <laughs> thinks is cool rather than right, right. giving him any credit for trying to sort of ask some of the uh, subversive questions that get brought to the table in this film. Right. I like I know, I know this is different. Um question like a different topic but do you know i know cabin fever performed really well which is why which is why he you know even ended up directing this and Mm -hmm. he was offered uh like to direct so many other horror movie remakes you know um but was it uh received well critically you know cabin fever again is one that at the time that it came out i thought it was received well critically but then it could just be the circles that uh, like were my movie friends at the time were all like kind of of the similar age and mindset. So it's like we see something like Cabin Fever and like, hey, that's good horror. But, you know, this has a 5.6, so it's slightly lower than Hostel, but in the same ballpark ratings wise. Mm-hmm. OK, yeah, I was just curious. It obviously afforded him the opportunity to go on and to do uh, other projects. So Cabin Fever was successful in that way. And I guess so was Hostel because he kept going on beyond this. Uh, but Hostel was probably the one that really like put him on the map in terms of like being somebody to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't agree with that review. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's the New York Times. There's no name associated with it, too. So I can't even say like, oh, this person said it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've got two fifties, but one of them is from the Boston Globe. And it just is not horrifying enough. And so I don't know what movie <laughs> that guy was watching. But <laughs> Sir Wesley Morris, if you don't think that's horrifying, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. So we're going to go to the AV Club. And that uh, is Scott Tobias, who I follow okay. on, t- on Twitter, says Roth gets the notes right while missing the music. He studiously replicates uh, Mike's unblinking depiction of torture, but without much reflection or wit. It's merely unpleasant and more than a little dumb. So he gave it a 50 out of 100. So that's, you know, on the Ebert scale, it's a two out of four. It's not terrible. But right. again, this seems like another person who doesn't like this this is just a dumb movie it's not saying anything (laughs) uh see i haven't seen any of of mike's films so i i would like to see them he i know he was very much inspired by by um audition uh but yeah i i guess i can't really comment on that either except to say like i disagree but maybe uh you know audition is just like super you know But again, this is points to like a second person, at least, that is looking at this as like Eli Roth is not as smart as he thinks he is kind of criticism. And part of while I was watching the film, I'm like, is this done with the intent to make this seem like this is cool and this thing to like aspire to as a young man? Because I imagine, let me see, Eli Roth, uh, where is he? I had his bio pulled up here a second ago. And now... I mean, like, what did they think he was? Like, that's the thing. I didn't know anything about Eli Roth except for mm-hmm. his role in Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I was like, I, I didn't know if he's a bro. I don't know if he's a, a horror movie aficionado. I was just like, oh, this movie's saying something. Clearly, you know. And I kind of started to doubt that um, the more I would hear him talk about things but uh you know clearly i like i listened to this commentary and he's saying like basically all the things that i said and you mm-hmm. said um and a lot of the choices made were intentional yeah so he's born in 1972 so he's 32 33 probably the time that he's working on this film so he's not approaching it from like hey i'm a 23 year old uh, right. like film school grad that just uh-huh. is like getting my feet wet and i think this is awesome and this is like what i'm gonna project as being cool i think he's got enough distance uh from that to to articulate that these are characters that are meant to be big uh, sort of broad strokes characters that we're not supposed to really be enjoying in that way. But it seems like the people that are on the negative side of the spectrum have sort of cast him in the negative light of like, oh, he's just a bro broing out and thinking it's cool. So we'll see what we'll see what we have left. We've got let's see, we got two sixties. Uh, so it's L.A. Weekly or the L.A. Times. I'll let you pick your poison. Um, Let's go with the Times. Los Angeles Times, this is Jan Stewart, says, seems to have been tailored to its designated R for brutal scenes of torture and violence, strong sexual content, language, and drug use. Uh, That's not much of a review or criticism (laughs) or much of anything. I'm surprised that this is the pull quote that came from the LA Times, Jan Stewart. Thanks, Um, Jan. Right. But I did read that he sort of assumed that the movie was going to be NC-17 because of how he made it. And then 
once he said once he saw excuse me that it was actually an r-rated film uh by the board then he just trimmed a couple things out for timing wise but it seems like he made it with the expectation that it was going to not receive the r and they were going to have to edit it down a lot more oh I, this is um remember when i said i forgot something yeah i, I remember it um, okay let's go basically um the ending was supposed to be completely different i'm so glad that they stuck to this ending um i don't know if you know this he was supposed to like like uh somehow find his daughter and like threaten to kill his daughter um the german man's daughter uh paxton was and that was supposed to be the ending like basically he was supposed to get his vengeance out on his daughter because she was the only thing he cared about and yeah and i was just like oh okay that's kind of weird um and that doesn't make him sympathetic and yeah. I don't know how he would find his daughter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like how much longer is the movie at that point? It goes on for another 45 yeah. minutes of him following the German guy back to his home and tracking right. his daughter Maybe that down was supposed and kidnapping to go her. Into the sequel? I, I don't know. But yeah, I'm I'm glad they changed it. Um, yeah, because like have you, you seen said, the sequel? Uh I think I may have seen it like when it came out, but it didn't register as something that like I'm storing in my memory for any particular reason. But I'm a little more curious to check it out now after rewatching this. Oh, I am not a huge fan of it. I actually couldn't finish it. Hostile 2. Yeah, I thought the torture was too much because I'm not saying that I liked that. You know, I feel like it's so often in in, um, genre films. It's like. Mm. Like, uh, you know, let's watch women be um, <laughs> abused and, and right. tortured. And it's kind of the opposite in this film, which I thought was interesting. So in Hostel 2, it is let's watch women be abused and tortured. And they just up the ante with that torture. I couldn't even watch this poor actress who I, I think in real life is going through things. And she went through stuff on the set of that film. And I was just like, yeah, I can't watch the scene. <laughs> but I know a lot of people like it. Okay, but I mean, with that in mind, not being able to finish the second one and seeing how it's portrayed, knowing that it's still directed by Eli Roth, does that change like your perspective on? Right, that is a good question. um... His goals (laughs) with the first one, like, because it seems like apparently there's this ending Mm -hmm. that uh, makes the messaging different. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have like this reverence for Eli Roth per se. I just don't think people give him enough credit for the things um, he's trying to say with this film. I think people who dismiss it as saying it's misogynistic or, you know, it, it's like super, you know, like uh, torture porn. Um, I, I, I think they're missing things. But to say that, you know, he, you know, basically went and, and did exactly what I think people think he did in Hostel in the mm-hmm. second one. <laughs> um you know that's that's just how it is so sometimes you'll watch a film and you'll enjoy it and then the follow-up is disappointing and um i think you know i watched cabin fever recently and i was like okay this is the one everybody said this is his his blank check basically and and Mm. the reason why hostel even got made and that was another one i felt mixed about so you know which i think is always an issue with genre films like there there's some great aspects of it but then there's some not so great aspects <laughs> so yeah. i don't know maybe i'll watch more of his films uh green inferno is supposed to be some sort of like environmental message isn't it um i would say the environmental message is like 
very, very loosely softballed in there, but it right. is there. It's like it's the catalyst for the film more than it is the meaning of the film. Right. Um, but it is graphic and it's tortury and these people are in a foreign land getting tortured by a foreign people and so it has a lot of the hallmarks of uh Eli's stuff but I'll just I'll leave it at that and if you want to watch it go for it and then I would say like if you watch that and watch knock knock I think that'll give you like a good full spectrum view of Eli and maybe maybe change the way you you look at his career as a whole but maybe not um right but it is interesting that like he could make this kind of movie. It gets mostly panned by critics, uh, despite it being successful. And then it's like, OK, well, I made a movie that I tried to incorporate these themes into and basically nobody got it. And they just called mm-hmm. it torture porn. So you're going to give me money to make a sequel. I'll show you what torture porn is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like a lot of people, like including other women, like the second one. So, you know, hmm. maybe my reading is just wrong. All I know is. It's very rare for me to stop watching a horror movie these days because I feel uncomfortable mm. and I felt uncomfortable watching that. <laughs> but I, I ended up reading the rest of the plot and I was like, okay, maybe I should have stuck around, but I just, I have no interest in finishing it. And it's probably because, um, what's her face? Uh, what is her name? It's like Heather Matarazzo. She's mm. been very vocal about some like issues that she's had uh, in the industry. And I just, I felt like maybe I just kind of, sympathize with her too much that i couldn't watch her be tortured so (laughs) okay fair enough and if it's my memory is very very uh fuzzy on this but did they like did they flip it so that the main characters are uh like a group of women yeah they're a group of women Mm -hmm. gotcha okay so let's get back on track here we've got right uh, (laughs) we've got uh let's see two 70s uh one of which is variety and the other one is the hollywood reporter so you can Mm. pick that too (laughs) let's go hollywood reporter the hollywood reporter this is michael rekshafen says Eli Roth turns uh, to modern day Asian fright filmmakers as inspiration for his latest blood soaked effort while demonstrating an intriguing original voice of his own. Look at that. Okay. Something positive. That's why it's a seven (laughs) out of 10 on this guy's scale. So yeah, they clearly see that he's like um, a student of the game and he enjoys horror filmmaking and he's well versed in his appreciation for it. And uh, give him credit for carving out his own voice within the space. So that's a lot of what we sort of talked about is that like he is clearly a guy who loves horror films. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it said that if I read his bio correctly, that he got into making films after watching Ridley Scott's Alien and throwing up. So he watched that movie, barfed and then was like, I got to do this for a living. Uh, <laughs> and you watched that movie and you're like, I got to name my dog. Ridley Scott. <laughs> Basically, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my dog. Uh, it was her name. I think we wanted to name my mom wanted to name her Ripley. And but she only wanted to do that because she heard somebody else had named their dog Ripley. And I was like, no, don't just copy them. So she was like, well, what about Ridley? Ridley Scott? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, we all like Ridley <laughs> Scott, so no problems there. Um, and it stuck. Does she really so. like Alien? uh the dog (laughs) no your mother (laughs) yes no my mother loved alien and she showed it to me at a very young age and uh so 
so it just kind of stuck. Ripple I mean. is a great name, though. I don't it know. Is. You could have named it. Um, Nuke? what's the guy's name? The robot guy. I love him. Oh, um, the second one is what? He's Ash. No, that's the first one. Uh, Bishop is the robot. In the yes, I love Bishop. Should name her Bishop. <laughs> okay, we've we've arrived at the the top tier of the reviews, and we've got three seventy five. So that's impressive. Right. We've got. Entertainment Weekly, TV Guide Magazine, and the New York Post. All 75. So I'll let you choose. Um, Entertainment Weekly? All right. Entertainment Weekly. It's Owen Gleiberman. I read his reviews on here a lot. So okay. uh, Mr. Gleiberman says it's obligatory for a horror film to feature exploitative sex as an appetizer. But Roth, even as he fulfills the sleaze imperative, does something shrewder. He mocks his heroes, presenting them as cold-eyed horndog jerks who fail to see that they've wandered into an entire country of exploitation. So there mm-hmm. you go. Like, oh, right. exactly yeah. what we've been saying. Yeah, it's, di- it's interesting it pretty well. <laughs> that these publications that are, you know, uh, classier aren't really getting the messaging. And it's like, oh, the Hollywood Reporter Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> Yeah, and you know you got to get the sleaze rags in there, but um, right. no offense to those uh, trade magazines. I've I've read those in the past. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like kudos to them, but it's yeah. like we have so much, you know, they have so much like esteem, you know, in New York Times, but they didn't really get it. <laughs> yeah, and I I think what I like most about Gleiberman's uh, pull quote here is that he understands that when you're making a horror film there's going to be exploitative sex. Like, Uh especially if you're someone that has sort of come up with 70s and 80s slashers as your foundation for why you like horror, because Eli was born in, I think, 72 is what I read. Mm -hmm. So he's coming up through all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the Jasons, uh, Sleepaway Camp. Like, he's coming through all of the classic slashers through the 70s and 80s. So basically every single one of those movies has some topless girl get killed and even when we were watching that friday the 13th with cosmo it was like girl they're going like skinny dipping or something she takes her shirt off and then like jason appears and i'm like does he have like boob radar it's like (laughs) he just knows that there's boobs out and he needs to kill anybody who's involved in that right it all all goes back to this thing of like sex being this sort of like evil (laughs) that people want to punish and like that's Mm -hmm. pretty present throughout uh, a lot of horror films and so recognizing that this is sort of like a necessary requirement in order for a guy like Eli Roth to make this kind of horror film right but then still understanding that look he fulfills the thing that he has to fulfill in order for it to fall into this category of film but also he really mocks the people that we're going to end up trying to sympathize with down the line and right that's a really tricky difficult thing to do like when you're creating a character who's going to survive a really sort of gruesome you know event uh or several events in this case uh typically you want that person to be someone that's the most sympathetic and like you said it was Josh that kind of comes across as oh i'm the i'm the more respectful uh nerdier type guy who's just kind of like going along with my bros and they kind of like bust my balls about not being like man enough and not doing enough womanizing but really i'm just like the nice guy that is here because they're here and we're gonna have a good time and then it's <laughs> like oh no you're not even the main character like you're gonna die 
Yeah. Yeah. I just think that part is so cool. <laughs> it is. And it's it's a it's a interesting gambit too when you're going to take the guy who like w- when I brought up uh, American Werewolf in Paris, like Josh is almost like the main character in that film where he's mm-hmm. like awkward around women and he's sort of like goofy and he's the one of his three bros that isn't like broing hard enough. He's not, you know, he's the least mm-hmm. cool of the guys that he's with. And so that typically ends up being your main character. And so it is uh, it's a challenge in and of itself uh, to the filmmaker to move away from that guy being your hero. But then it further challenges the audience to really see a person like Paxton uh, mm-hmm. who is maybe like the uh, the the most stereotypical of the group uh, right. in, in a negative way and <laughs> to then move the focus of the film to him and his survival story like you're you're actually giving the audience a fair amount of credit which kind of puts me more so in the camp of like Eli was smart enough to figure this stuff out and just people were maybe not ready for it at the time. And since I've Uh seen more films uh, more recently that have also been like, here's a main character that when we introduce you to this character, they're not really a likable person. And Mm -hmm. then the more time you spend with them, it's not necessarily that they become like super likable, but you start to understand and sympathize with them the longer you're with them. Right. Yeah, I honestly wonder, you know, uh, he had a, like, I guess three other writers. He had a Boaz Yakin and uh, Scott Spiegel were producers on this film. Mm. And um, I think they really helped him uh, make changes to the story to make it more subversive, because I think originally they were just going to have Josh um, be the main character and to survive. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that they ended up doing the things that they did and making the changes they did, uh, because I think kind of regardless of whether or not uh, you walk away from Hostel liking the movie. I mean, like because it is it's a tough movie to be like, hey, I really like Hostel because it's like, you know, it's graphic, it's violent. Uh, it's but when lo- you say it's like pretty tame for today, like for some horror movies today, I mean, like like even, you know, Jurassic World came out and I, I know people think the scene is terrible um and that woman is just like uh getting torn apart by that pterodactyl <laughs> you know that and that was like a family movie you know i don't yeah, know it feels point. pretty tame for today I don't yeah know. i think it's more about like in a scene like where you see someone get torn apart like the amount of like uh blood i would say mm-hmm. like i don't i don't remember that scene that well with jurassic so World, it's but... like the blood okay yeah because like I... even when you see josh get killed you don't see him get killed. It cuts to the next scene, mm-hmm. you know, e- even with like that woman's toe, it cuts to her friend cutting her toenail. Like yeah. it, it doesn't really show you that much carnage. And then when it does show you, it's like, it, you know, just just taking apart some fingers from a hand, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm desensitized. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know what your general <laughs> horror movie viewing appetite is. Um but like a, a film that came out uh, earlier this year in Evil Dead Rise, like is pretty mm-hmm. graphic, pretty bloody. I mean, uh, you get like limbs, I think, like shot off and you know, there's a lot of like chainsaw blood spraying everywhere. So I think it's more, at least for me, about um, the tone of the scene, mm-hmm. because it's like 
you could give me a chainsaw and a ton of blood, but depending on how that scene is depicted yeah. is going to determine whether or not, like, I think it's something that's trying to be funny or it's trying to be gross or trying okay. to like, really be. So if it, if it was like campier, it wouldn't have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's probably a good uh, indication of where hostile lies because it, it's graphic, but it's not um, it's not like out of this world graphic mm -hmm. but yeah the tone is almost always very serious in the moments mm -hmm. where that graphic violence is happening right like we're, we're saying like it, you know it makes you question your appetite for violence yeah which i think is kind of the point you know yeah um so yeah we've arrived at the end we're, we're getting we're getting <laughs> on the train we're not jumping in front of it and uh i typically ask my guests at this point in the show for people that um, have seen Hostel and want to see more like it, or for people who are maybe on the fence of watching Hostel and you would want to give them a comparison film to sort of ease them into watching Hostel, uh, do you have a movie that falls into that realm? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were talking about it earlier. Um, I think Fresh is really great. Um I, I think I watched that with my mom. Even then we were complaining about, not really complaining, just like, you really don't see anything in that film. I don't want to spoil it, but it kind of has uh, like a similar plot to Hostel. And you don't really see a lot of carnage or anything. It's more of like, like a comedy horror film. And it's kind of um, a commentary on dating, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, I don't know, I feel like, of course, this is older. It's kind of like a staple. Um, I watch Texas Chainsaw, and I feel like like uh, they, they're they very similar in tone and with their commentary as well. Um, and that one is definitely campier. So, I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> if you can't a, stomach like the seriousness of Hostel, that might be good. Or... Again, you might like Hostel 2. Um, I didn't like it. But, oh, I've also seen Hostel 3. And that one is just, it's not good. And there's okay. no involvement <laughs> with Roth. Um, But the opening scene is incredible. Okay. <laughs> and it's it's enjoyable. And I'm like, okay. In, in the exact way I thought Hostel 1 would be enjoyable. I was like, okay, I'll just put this on just to be a, a completionist. But, of course, I haven't completed it. But... Um, yeah, it's not good, but it's kind of fun. And okay. opening scene is great. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, like you said, if if you need some laundry that needs folding or you just <laughs> want something on in the background, then maybe that's the right time to check it out. I guess my two primary recommendations in that neighborhood would be probably like Eden Lake um, with Michael Fassbender and the ruins, which has Jenna Malone. And I think the ruins is probably a little bit closer in that it is a small group of uh, American friends. They team up with some foreigners that lead them to a place where they shouldn't be. And then shit hits the fan when they're in the place that they shouldn't be. And they're sort of asking you, uh, whether how much you want to sympathize with these people who are clearly like being disrespectful of um, like this ancient place that they're in. And right. uh, I think it, that sounds good. I got to watch that. Yeah, it gets a little probably too far away from its biggest strengths by the end of the movie. Like 
it is good. And then when it's kind of like revealed, like what the the it part of it is, it's like, OK, like I, I, I get it, but they didn't maybe do that part as much justice as I would have hoped. But I still do like that movie. I have the unrated version. I've watched it several times. So even my one like little nitpicky kind of criticism with it is still a movie that I like in the horror genre quite a bit. So. Okay, I gotta add that to my list. Um, I actually just, I'm sorry, I just thought of one that's really good. Go for um, it. I saw it for the first time the other day, and it was just like, like I had the same feeling watching it when I watched Hostel. Um, have you seen Green Room? Uh, yes. Oh, Green Room is so good. Oh my god, that yeah. was crazy. Oh my god. But yeah, that was also one of uh, Anton Yelchin's final films as well. So yes. one of the reasons that it was like on my watch list at the time. But uh, yeah, very brutal. You got a, a band of guys that are like in the wrong place at the wrong time and shit escalates very, very quickly. And there's some really gnarly graphic stuff that happens in that film as well. Yeah, Green Room's a good one. Um, but yeah, we've we've arrived at the station. It's time to depart. But uh is there anything that we that we didn't cover that you want to say before we get out of here? We talked about so much. It's really like we did cover Honestly. so much ground. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's that's it. Yeah. OK. And um, <laughs> I know you had mentioned I just found out, though, for the first time that you had like a film blog and I know you've got letterbox and stuff. Oh, like that. Yeah. Do you want to uh, shout your projects out and then I can share them around for you? Um. Well, I would probably say you can follow my letterbox um, and also my Twitter. I am at Jamila Brownie, um, <laughs> like like a brownie that you eat. Uh, <laughs> and I do have a film blog, but it's mostly stuff um, that I put on there that it's pretty infrequent. So I would just check out um, my letterbox and stuff. OK. And. Thank you so much for bringing this movie to the table. Um, I I really hope we're going to live up to the expectations of the film club that has now like hyped this episode up so much <laughs> uh, just over the course of the last, you know, day or so. And, you know, Sean got to thank him for sticking it out for a movie that he didn't <laughs> like just so he could listen to us talk about it. And he says, well, like, what part did he leave on? Like, he was like five minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, he watched the whole thing, but I think uh, in hindsight, oh, I he thought was you like, said he was like five minutes. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, that was that was just like uh, his sort of uh, letterbox review. Is that like after the first five to six minutes, you can just stop, and there's nothing to be gained from it beyond there. Um, so I, I appreciate him, you know, sticking it out just so that he could listen to us right. about it for two hours. Cause now his, his movie that was an hour and a half, they didn't like, he has to listen to us talk about it for two hours and some change. So uh, Sean, yeah. you're a true. I'm sorry mother. if I like, um, so bad at expressing myself so much. So no, <laughs> I do have like job. a really long essay about it. Um, send my it blog to me. and on letterbox, yeah. send it to me. Okay. I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Oh, yeah. I wanted to tell you, I started listening to y'all's Morbius episode. And, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why, but in particular, like, just the way you would, like, edit things and, like, <laughs> like just like, oh, and he has this bat entourage. It was just cracking me up. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I've tried to get better at the sort of, like, uh, the production work that goes into the show to kind of lead in with some of the, the funnier things and 
get the get the ball rolling uh, and get the show started on the right foot. So thank you for listening. And the Morbius episode was a lot of fun. And I think uh, Sean was a little surprised that multiple people listened to it. I was like, yeah, there was like 30 or 40 people that morbed out with us. So we're not al- <laughs> we're not alone in the Morbius club. And we're just waiting for Ben to finally uh, bite the bullet and get on the. Morbius oh, he hasn't done one. No, Ben um, has stubborn, I stubbornly watched it. No, he came on the show with Nix and we did Showgirls and that was a great Oh, episode. he hasn't watched Morbius. Um, he, yeah. Honestly, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I never finished it. And it's not because I thought it was super bad. It was it was really funny to me. <laughs> but I don't I don't know. Sometimes I'll watch movies and I have to do something and I'll just never get around to finishing it. So um, I got to finish that. But yeah. I think I listened to a podcast where they were talking about it and I know everything that happened, but <laughs> so. yeah, that's why, you know, Ben has been sort of waiting to pull the trigger on Morbius. And I was like, look, if they're, if the only good thing that like really comes out of this is me and Sean make Ben watch Morbius. Right. Uh, then and you guys we, are we very wrong. One. Doctor who is very popular here, at least with my demographic. Okay. Like, we had people come in dressed as Doctor Who characters. I had this English teacher who was obsessed with this minor character on like one season of Doctor Who. It's 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 yeah, it's very popular. It <laughs> the is new Sha- Sean and iteration. I just don't like it. Right. Well, but you guys I never are watched like it. I don't think I don't think Matt Smith has he has the power. He's for some reason, um, I shouldn't have said that, but he's known as like the sexy iteration of Doctor Who. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's very popular <laughs> he is i'm just saying like as a as a hollywood right. uh actor like, yeah but no he's definitely a draw okay um <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that's why morbius has a following in the first place maybe <laughs> i know matt smith was in one of the terminator movies as well but it's like he's kind of just was he yeah what, exactly the one, he, exactly um... was he <laughs> He was in the background. He's like he plays a character that is briefly shown his face and then he's like a hologram the rest of the movie. So it's like, yeah, he's in it. But is he really? Honestly, I I mean, I've watched some of them. I like the last one I, I watched was the one with um Christian Bale. And that oh, was super good. Um, honestly. And then the one with like the female Terminator. Um, I watched that a lot as a kid. Uh, Terminator but 3. It's definitely yeah. not one of the better ones. Yeah, I guess in hindsight, Terminator 3 is uh it held up better than some of like the the 5 and 6 were Genesis and Dark right. Fate. Uh, it did, but it's strange that they didn't um they didn't have a Edward Furlong play John. I know, right? I mean he wasn't really like doing that much other stuff. He had come off of American history X. So maybe his price tag to be John Connor had like climbed a little bit more than, uh, maybe it was like substance abuse issues or something. Could have been that too. You know, he's, uh, and then the guy that they cast, he doesn't even like look like him either. Strange. Stall, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even terrible or anything, but, uh, it's just like, you're stepping into some really big shoes in that Terminator three, where it's like, you're probably better off just like not even having John in the movie at that point And like, go get probably, Hamilton yeah. back. Make the whole movie you guys looking for John and then like you find him at the end. It doesn't matter that it's Edward Furlong or not. Yeah, and I guess they tried that with that recent one. Like, let's not even like, I mean, she was in it. Linda Hamilton was in it. But yeah. it's kind of like, let's take away the John Connor from from Terminator. It's mm-hmm. probably where they need to go with that. But honestly, they need to stop making the movies if James Cameron's not involved, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. Dark Fate was a weird one where. 
I liked it because it really adheres to the sort of tentpole mythology moments in Terminator where it's like these things about fate and timeline cycles and inevitability and erasing John from the equation I know was really off-putting to a lot of people because it's like hey Eddie Furlong's back Linda Hamilton's back and then we're gonna kill off John in the first like five minutes of the movie uh really just like set people off in the beginning but Mm -hmm. uh some of what that movie explores uh it explores well I just don't know that the appetite for really having those conversations around Terminator exists once sort of the goodwill was burned out of the franchise if that makes sense right like had dark fate been the direct sequel to terminator 2 i think you maybe have more uh more appreciation for it because Mm -hmm. it seems like it follows in the footsteps of what those first two films had established and then by the time you do terminator 3 which is a john centric movie you do salvation which is another john centric movie you do genesis which is another john centric movie so (laughs) you you moved off of the first two terminator films where like i started to realize i got older that terminator is sarah connor's story it's not john's story right like the first one john's not even in it the second one is about her going from being like uh sort of like a waitress who's like helpless in uh the unraveling of her own fate to her like Mm -hmm. taking an active hand in it and the first time we see her in terminator 2 she's shredded because she's just been like working out in her cell and we get that kind of sarah connor who becomes like the badass mama bear she basically becomes kyle reese yeah, exactly. Like, uh, and so I watched the first Terminator for uh, like the first time in like a long time, and I guess I'd never seen it in its entirety. And I was like, mm. "Oh, that part where he's freaking out—that's just like when she's freaking out at the asylum." Just like, yeah, yeah she just becomes him. <laughs> yeah, so I started recently the Sarah Connor Chronicles because I heard good things about that, and it's like a little bit of a learning curve because it's like, oh, there's a different John, a different Sarah. There's no Arnold, so. It's like I'm trying to give it enough time to breathe where I can start to really like you accept like these characters. Never watched that show. The first episode is a really good entry point back into the Terminator universe, but you can tell that like they spent a lot of their budget on making that first one sort of like as close to the movies as they could while it's still a TV show. And then the subsequent ones are kind of like they're slowing down the pace a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm trying to Isn't give it a there, chance. Isn't there like a female Terminator who's played by like? summer yes. glow yep there's a female terminator or i don't know i think at this point i just know that she's like a cyborg of some kind i don't know what she okay. is yet but uh yeah interesting so hey if anybody's listening to this and you want to talk about terminator 3 or any of the other terminators <laughs> after terminator 2 on bad movies we love please reach out to me and i will uh gladly entertain you on that um but yes, there's this what? part in that movie where her chest literally grows. In uh, you remember that? In which one? Is that the one with Claire Danes, Terminator Three? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the one with Kristana uh, Loken is the the Terminatrix. Yeah, her chest, like she sees like an ad and it a makes store her bigger. And you, she, <laughs> I'm like, this this movie is ridiculous. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why would that be necessary? All she has to do is kill John Connor. Like, what? Yeah, I mean, 
because when they introduced like Arnold and uh, they introduced the T-1000, uh, Robert Patrick and the second one, those guys aren't like, hold on, let me first make my dick bigger before I go around right. and kill these people. <laughs> Maybe they did and they just did it off camera, but you never know. Right. <laughs> uh, it's like a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Terminator is there to do. But she's like, hey, you know what? If my boobs are bigger, maybe I'll be able to more easily infiltrate the human world. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I guess I got to go back and watch that one again. Despite but. the fact that she already looked like like a, you know, a, a model. <laughs> yeah. They sent a supermodel back in time. It's like she'll be fine. You know, she doesn't need to grow her. boobs. No, she then. needs bigger breasts. <laughs> yeah. Well. You never know. I mean, I don't. Does she put them to use in the movie? I or don't think so. it's just a no. throwaway scene. There's not like a scene later where her. Yeah. Boobs and then also handy. like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sh- that's a show for another time when we do Terminator <laughs> 3. But hey, if anybody I swear, if anyone's listening, I love Terminator 3. It's so goofy. It's like the it's the last of sort of. uh the 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 big action you kind of, style you kind of enjoy it but you're like this is not as good <laughs> oh yeah i mean at the time it came out i was like this movie sucks and then the then i watched it like a bunch more after that and i was like okay like it obviously didn't suck as much as i thought the first time and then the more they keep trying to make terminator movies the more i'm like well terminator 3 is like the closest to terminator 2 that they've gotten since all these other ones have come out it's still uh does a lot of like the Terminator things like there's the chase scene and the robot fight, et cetera, et cetera. So it does all of that stuff. Well, it just maybe the connective tissue isn't quite as strong. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that we've, we've touched on Terminator and aliens and all these other movies as well. And King, besides Kong and Godzilla. King Kong, King Kong and his love interests, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I thought he fell in love with Linda Hamilton. He may, he may have. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. But uh, yeah, this is the 1980s one. And I think Nick's wanted to talk to me about De Laurentiis' one from 70, 72 or 76. I don't know. I got to go back and look and touch base with him. But Jamila, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And should you find another movie that you feel you want to bring to this show, please let me know. And uh, we'll schedule another talk sometime in the future. All right. Thank you. I will. I like your mushroom shirt. Oh, thank you so much. I got this up in Northern California. And then the guy who uh, sold it to me was like, do you like those kind of mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell like he's done a lot of drugs in his life. And so <laughs> we we got into a little psilocybin discussion. But uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he he wasn't giving me mushrooms at the time. He was just selling me a shirt. So. It's Central, okay. Central California. <laughs> I'm not going to say nothing. <laughs> uh, Jamila, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you so much for your time. Have fun with your doggy. Thanks again to Jamila for taking the time to join me and for bringing Hostel to the table. And if you like listening to her talk about it, you can check out her letterbox at Your Intrepid One, or you can find her on X at Jamila Brownie. And I put those links up in the show notes for you. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. 
I'd love to hear from you. So if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram. And that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies. <laughs>